Hello everyone. I hope you all had a very Merry Christmas. And before we begin, I just wanted to say thank you all so much for your support of the podcast and the YouTube channel in general. Without all of you, it wouldn't be possible. So, let's do what we do best and dive further into Mr. Creep's mind. My answer the letters that children send to Santa Claus. I started receiving some very strange letters, written by Pudinator. I checked my inbox this time last year and it said, You have 63 unread emails. And this was going to be a long night. Sure, I love Christmas as much as the average person, and I like earning a bit of extra money but I still wasn't looking forward to it. It was my job to read each and every one of these emails and respond as if I were the real Santa Claus. I also had a small pile of handwritten letters that needed a reply as well. They were stacked up next to me, all neatly tied together with a piece of string. For some reason, I actually prefer receiving the handwritten letters other than the electronic version. It feels more personal, but it seems like most kids nowadays would rather send an email. In fact, I had only this small pile of 12 letters this year. All the others were strictly via email. I began to click through each email, quickly skimming what it was that each child wanted for Christmas. Before replying that, I would try my best to deliver that gift to them. I would always end the email by signing off as a Santa Claus before clicking send. Most kids would want the usual presents of bikes, games, or a puppy, but there were also a number of requests that were a bit more unique. One kid wanted a bottle of hand sanitizer, while another wanted a hammer. For the most part though, it appeared that kids mainly wanted similar gifts. The night was getting late by the time that I had answered the majority of the emails. My hand and wrist were beginning to tire. But the thought of earning $3 for each reply was what managed to keep me working. My eyes wanted to close and so I decided to leave the small stack of letters until tomorrow. I still had a dozen or so emails to complete but it was time to call it a night. And then that all too familiar unmistakable sound of another new email rang out across my small apartment. I knew that I wasn't going to respond, but I wanted to skim read it just to see what it said before making acquaintance with my bed. Holly, good work on responding to all those emails tonight. I know it's mentally draining and I know you're working hard at it, but I just want to make sure you are also replying to the handwritten letters that I sent over to you this morning. Those kids need a response too. Thanks, Michael. I've never met Michael, but when it came to getting my job done, he was in constant contact with me. Michael was a decent boss, but sometimes could be a bit pushy and a tad demanding. I was going to respond to the letters as well, but both Michael and the kids would have to wait until tomorrow to hear back from the fake Santa. I was just about to finish closing the lid on my laptop when I heard another unmistakable ding sound. Another email had come through. I thought that most kids would be in bed at this late hour and not send any Christmas wish list via email. Curious, I flicked my laptop back open and read the new email. 
The subject consisted of only six words. It read, On the first day of Christmas. Unsure of what this meant, I opened the email and read what was written. It didn't take long to read the words because it was only two sentences long. The caroler sent me a partridge hanged in a pear tree. I reread the email a couple of times, making sure that I completely comprehended the message. I knew what was written, but I didn't entirely know what it meant. I sat there staring at the computer screen, confused as to what this email was about. I didn't have long to be confused though, because another ding filled the silence in the room. I looked at my inbox and saw that another email had just been sent through. This time there was no subject, but the actual contents of the email was once again only a few sentences long. The first Noel, the angels did slay. The caroler. This email also made mention of the caroler, and I was unsure as to who exactly that was. Maybe just someone playing some sort of prank. But I had seen enough horror movies to not completely dismiss this as such. More often than not, things like this turn out not to be a practical joke, and so I was wary as to what was really going on here. I thought that it was best to not respond to these emails, but I knew that I shouldn't just delete them and forget about them either. Another ding. This time when I checked the email, it only contained a single sentence, another line from a famous Christmas song. Silent night, holy night, shepherds quake at my sight. The caroler. The caroler signed his name at the bottom of the email again, making sure that I knew it was from them, whoever they were. I was starting to feel a strange sense of dread, like my body knew that something was clearly wrong, but my brain was still trying to decipher what exactly. I was definitely concerned by the caroler's use of the word slay. Two more dings, both of them making me jump slightly in my seat. My eyes darted back to the top of my inbox list and I saw two new emails had just arrived. The first one read, Bells on Bob's a tail ring, making his spirit rise. The caroler. And the second email, also from the caroler, contained another quote from another joyful Christmas carol. Joy to the world, for I have come. The caroler. Now I was worried. Whoever this was wasn't mistakenly sending me these emails. This was intentional. They wouldn't accidentally send me five emails, all containing strange versions of carols. Each email seemed to allude to something dark or sinister, which is something that I couldn't ignore. Another ding. Rudy, the dead-nosed reindeer, had a very tiny nose. The caroler. This email was the first to truly disturb me. I'm not sure entirely why, but I think it was because it seemed as if Rudolph was purposely changed to another name. This probably meant something, but what that was was still unknown. Obviously, the caroler was trying to scare me, and he definitely knew how to. What scared me the most, though, was what if these emails were clues to something? Ding. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the firstborn king, the caroler. I read this email twice before I noticed that it read, 
firstborn instead of newborn, as is heard in the song. I wasn't quite sure what the significance of this change was, but I was certain that it had to mean something. Ding. O come, all ye faithful, dreadful and triumphant, O come ye, O come ye, to Bath. The Caroler. Another changed lyric to suit a name. I was absolutely sure that this was on purpose now. This had to mean something. This had to be a clue to something bigger. It just wasn't possible to make this many spelling mistakes without them being deliberate and calculated. I looked around my empty apartment. It was dark apart from the light of my laptop screen providing a faint glow of light. The darkness no longer felt comfortable, and I needed a proper light source to help calm myself down. I needed to be able to see everything that was inside the apartment, just in case. I stood up out of my seat and only took one step towards the light switch when I heard another. I didn't want to look at it, not until the light was on. I continued to walk towards the light switch while constantly looking through the darkness, hoping not to see anything within it. I reached the switch, flicked it on and quickly glanced around the room. It was empty. Only the wardrobe, my desk, and my bed were present. I quickly walked back over to the laptop, but as I did, two more distinct dings rung out across the room. When I had reached the laptop again, I had three unread emails that had just been sent through. I knew exactly who they were from before I looked at them. The first email read, He sees Hugh when he's sleeping. He knows when he's awake. The caroler. I paused to take in what I had just read before moving on to the second email. Bad tidings I bring to you and your Finn, the caroler. The final email, which was the longest so far, read, And Carol out in the snow, there'll be scary ghost stories and tales of the gory Christmases long, long ago, the caroler. Three more emails and three more names mentioned. I waited, watching the laptop screen, waiting for another ding, waiting for another email to pop up, but it seemed like the emails had stopped. I waited for a few minutes, expecting to receive another one, but it never arrived. As I sat in my now well-lit apartment, I felt a chill run down my spine. I wasn't really that sure of what I had just experienced or what any of it meant. I just knew that it wasn't something I wanted to be involved with. It was silent and I was listening out for any small noise that I could just in case I heard anyone nearby. I could hear a car or two outside of my window, but other than that, it was a silent night. I had never heard of anyone called the caroler before and I was afraid as to who or what they could be. Why were they contacting me? And why all the cryptic emails? I suddenly had a thought. The letters... The handwritten letters for Santa that I hadn't had a chance to look at yet. For some reason they had popped into my mind, and once the thought of them had occurred, I couldn't shake the feeling that they may be involved somehow. I looked to the side and towards the bundle of envelopes that were beside me. I reached out and grabbed the top letter on the stack. I tore it open and pulled out the single sheet of paper that was inside. The piece of paper was only small, and it only had a few sentences written on it, in small, incredibly neat handwriting. Dear Santa, for Christmas, I want to be a partridge in a pear tree, 
from Georgia Partridge. I instantly knew that this was all connected somehow, and I frantically grabbed at the second letter. I tore the envelope that contained the second letter. I pulled the piece of paper out of the envelope and quickly unfolded it. Again, there was a small note written in the same neat handwriting as the previous letter. Dear Santa, All I want is to be found in the fields as I lay. From Noel Dover. I read the letter then froze. I recognized that name. Noel Dover. I had heard it before. I swear I had. I just couldn't remember where. Pushing the thought of his name aside, I grabbed the next envelope that sat at the top of the pile, tore it open and plucked out its contents. The same handwriting greeted me in what now felt like a taunting manner. Dear Santa, for Christmas I want to sleep in heavenly peace. From Henry Shepard. It then struck me. I remember how I knew the name Noel Dover. While I thought I did so, I went back to my laptop and searched for his name. I was right. I correctly remembered where I knew his name from. Search enters day 12 for missing camper. Missing camper Noel Dover has been missing for almost two weeks now. Both police and volunteers have been tirelessly searching ever since it was first reported that he was missing. Police inspected his campsite and have today revealed that there is evidence that points to foul play. It is unknown at this time whether there are any suspects that relate to his disappearance. The article continued to explain more about the missing man, but I had read enough. I remembered the story from a few years ago. As far as I knew, no one had ever been convicted for his abduction. In fact, I don't think there were ever any suspects. After discovering this piece of information, my mind began to race. Why was this letter sent to me? And why did it reference a true crime? Of course, my brain immediately thought of the possibility that whoever was sending me these letters were involved with his disappearance. But I tried my best to push that thought out of my mind. I know it was the logical explanation, but the thought scared me too much to entertain it any longer. Out of either curiosity or maybe hope that it was all the coincidence, I decided to search the internet for the other names mentioned in these letters. Georgia Partridge and Henry Shepard. I hoped to find that they had not met similar fates. I entered both of their names into the search engine. I didn't like the two newspaper articles that I found out about them. Georgia Partridge. Body found hanging from an old pear tree. Henry Shepard. His body was found inside of his home. A large hole was dug through his forehead. I was seeing the pattern which I guess was the caroler's design. The disturbing trend of the names from the letters all belonging to deceased individuals was one that I wished I wasn't involved with. I looked around my apartment one more time, just to confirm that I was indeed alone. I couldn't make out anything out of the ordinary, just the usual furniture and clutter. I turned back around to face my laptop and the slowly declining stack of letters. I had to know what else was hidden within those envelopes. Of course, I was afraid to see what else they would reveal, but I had to know. I also needed to know why they had specifically been sent to me. I pulled the next letter that was resting atop the pile and I opened it. Dear Santa, I want to sing a slaying song tonight. From Robert Colleen. 
another clue that directly related to the emails I had previously received. Bells on Bob's tail rang, making his spirit rise. The email that had mentioned Bob rushed through my head. I had no doubt in my mind that if I researched his name, he would have a similar fate as the others. I decided that I didn't really want to know about Bob's fate, so I moved on to the next letter and read it. Dear Santa, I want to hear the angels' voices ring. From Joy Gold. I read through this letter once before, tossing it to one side and opening the following letter. Dear Santa, I want to meet Slasher and Dancer and Prancer and Vixen. From Rudy Lane. After reading this letter, which also was written in the exact same handwriting as all the previous ones, I turned back to my laptop. I looked back through my email inbox and began to cross-reference the letters with the emails that had been sent. So far, they were all in the same order, and each name that was involved in the email was the same name that each letter was from. I guess at this stage, my curiosity got the better of me and I decided to try and find out what had happened to Robert, Joy, and Rudy. It didn't take long to discover their fates. Robert Colling disappeared from his home on Christmas Eve four years ago. Neighbors claimed to not see anyone near his house, but heard bells at around midnight. Joy Gold was strangled to death in her own home. A long piece of tinsel was discovered close to her body. Rudy Lane disappeared 11 years ago. His body has never been found. All that was ever located was his nose, which was cut off his face and was left on his mantelpiece beside a number of Christmas cards. I know at this point I should have phoned the police, or phoned anyone really, but I guess my morbid curiosity got the better of me. I needed to know more. At this moment, I heard what sounded like a slight creak behind me and I jumped in my seat and turned around quickly to see what it was. Nothing out of the ordinary was apparent inside my apartment. I couldn't see anything or hear anything, other than the sound of my own rapid breathing and the loud thumping of my heart. I turned my desk chair slightly, so that it was angled in a way that meant I could see the door to my apartment and I could still easily reach the letters. I wanted to have eyes facing out towards the main area of my living space, and so I could see the front door. I didn't think anyone would try to enter my apartment, but I wanted to be able to see in case they did. Once I was satisfied that I would be able to see anyone entering the apartment, I grabbed the next letter and opened it. Dear Santa, I want to join the triumph of the skies. From Jacob King it took a bit longer to find further information about Jacob King, but I did manage to find something. Not a newspaper article like previously, but a post on social media by who I presumed was Jacob's mother. It read, If anyone knows where my oldest son Jacob is, I beg of you to tell me. He hasn't been seen by anyone for three days now, and I need to know where he is. If he's with you, let me know. That was all I managed to find about him, but it told me more than enough. He was missing. I looked down at these stack of papers that were left. There were still five envelopes sitting on the desk. No doubt, five more clues and five more people that were now missing or dead. 
I dreaded opening them, but at the same time, I needed to know what they said. I knew that once they were all open, I would take my findings to the police. There was evidence here that all these crimes were connected. Someone knew about them. The caroler knew. I opened the next four letters, one after the other, and read what was written on each one. Dear Santa, I want to sing, sing with a choir of angels, sing in execution. From Beth Maid. Dear Santa, do you know if I've been bad or good, cause I've been bad for goodness sake. From Hugh Dancer. Dear Santa, I wish you a Merry Chris Massacre. From Finn Lord. Dear Santa, can you make it the most sinful time of the year? From Carol Piping. I read through each letter, getting more and more worried as I opened each one. I was worried because I was getting closer towards the final letter. The letter that I really wasn't sure what it was going to contain. I had only received 11 emails, yet this was the 12th letter that I was going to open. I could think hopefully and assume that this envelope actually contained a child's letter to Santa, but hopeful wasn't something I could be after what I had just read through. I knew that it was going to be another letter from the caroler. I turned my chair back around, sacrificing my eyeline to the door to do so and very hesitantly picked up the final letter. I slowly tore the envelope open and pulled out the sheet of paper that was inside. As I pulled out the letter, I could see it was the same handwriting. The same neat handwriting that was present on all the other letters. I read it out loud this time, and the letter was exactly what I feared it would be. Deck the halls with bowels of holly. The caroler. As I finished reading it, I heard a voice come from directly behind me, speaking directly into my ear. Fa la 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 ha 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 ha. I didn't even have time to scream before I felt the damp cloth held across my mouth and nose. My nose immediately smelt a sweet odor, which I could also slightly taste as I breathed in whatever the cloth was soaked in. I tried to claw the cloth away from my face, but the hand that held it there was too strong. I tried to scream, I tried to panic, but it was all useless. I had no other choice than to breathe in the chemicals on the cloth. I could feel my vision starting to disappear, and my hearing become muffled. I began to slip out of consciousness. The last thing I remember before everything went black was a muffled voice singing. I could barely make out the words. Lay down your sweet head. A haunting tune began to fill my ears, and I could still only see black. But the sound of what sounded like a melodic screaming was penetrating my ears. The screaming tune was only quiet and the sound of bells jingling accompanied the melody. My eyesight began to return. First, all I could sense were soft lights of red and green. Then the world around me came back into focus. It didn't take me long to realize that I wasn't in my apartment anymore. My apartment isn't covered in tinsel and fakes now. Unlike where I was now, I was inside of a large hall, filled with every Christmas decoration that you could think of. If you imagine what Santa's village would look like, then that's probably a good description of where I was. 
Just in front of me was a small wooden sign with the words, Welcome to Tinseltown, painted on it, and the same neat handwriting that was on the letters I received. Tinseltown was beautiful, it really was. It was sitting in front of an expansive model village. Bright lights lit up the rows and rows of small model houses. Fake snow was falling under the top of them and sitting gently atop the roofs. A large Christmas tree sat at the center of the model village. Tinsel and baubles covered every inch of it. Around the Christmas tree, I could also see a model library and a large statue of a traditional-looking caroler. Near the back of the village, there was also a model church. On top of the large steeple that protruded from the church sat a large silver bell that swayed gently. Everything in the village was completely decorated. Lights were hanging from the front of the houses and tinsel was strewn across the model trees in each front yard. There was even a faint smell of fruit, mince pies, and gingerbread in the air. Everything about this place felt like a Christmas shed. I would have enjoyed the spectacle and the atmosphere that was before me if I wasn't taken here against my will and if I wasn't bound to a chair. While chair might be an understatement, I was tied to what looked like more a red velvet throne. It looked exactly like the chairs that you see Santa depicted sitting in. Each wrist was bound to the armrest with a thick string of Christmas lights. Through my panic, my ears managed to tune back into the haunting music that I heard while I was regaining consciousness. It was coming from the side of me. I turned my head to face whatever it was that was making the sound. I saw that it was coming from an old record player. It sounded as if something was screaming in tune through the player, rather than actual music. Standing next to the record player, with his back facing towards me, was a fairly tall, portly man dressed in a dark black coat. A top hat sat on top of his head, which was also black with a red stripe that ran along its circumference. The man must have noticed that I was looking at him, because at that moment he turned off the record player and he turned around to face me. And the first thing I saw when he turned around was his thick brown mustache that sat above his top lip. The man who must have been in his early 40s also had large brown mutton chops that sprouted out of his face. He was also wearing a large red handkerchief that sat around his neck. In his left hand, he was holding sleigh bells, which I guessed was the bell sound that I had heard. He looked exactly like the caroler statue that stood inside at the model village. Ah, you're awake. Splendid. He said in a rather energetic and joyful voice. I didn't respond, well, not by speaking anyway. I started to panic, which involved both screaming and crying. I screamed as loud as I could, for help, for anyone that could hear me. The man, who I assumed was the caroler, walked over to the large throne and knelt down in front of me, and began to wave these sleigh bells directly in my face. I think this was his way of silencing me but it would take more than a ringing bell to silence me. He could tell that his method wasn't working and so he stood back up and put his hand into his pocket and pulled out a very large candy cane. He unwrapped it and shoved the straight end directly into my mouth. I felt it almost touch the back of my throat and I gagged a little bit on it 
I used the muscles in my mouth to push it forward slightly, just enough so that it was sitting slightly more comfortably in my mouth. This time, the caroler's method had worked. He had been able to silence me. Why all the screaming and crying? Don't you know it's the most wonderful time of the year? Tis the season to be jolly, he said to me in a slightly mocking tone, as he theatrically threw his hand up in the air. He then began to laugh a hearty guffaw. His laughter was loud, and beside the fact he was most likely a killer, it sounded jolly. He stopped laughing and began to stare at me, almost as if he was proud of me, or maybe he was proud that he had been able to take me. He bent down again, this time so that he could see into my eyes. His bright green eyes were almost parallel to mine, and he stared at me with an intensity that I had never felt before. A smile then formed across his face, a smile of almost pure joy. He wasn't enjoying himself immensely. He then began to speak in an excited tone. Oh, I'm sorry. I haven't welcomed you to my home yet. Welcome to Tinseltown. He said as he stood up and waved his arm to show off the model village that was before us. Do you like it? Does it have enough Christmas spirit? He asked me and then waited for a response. Mm-hmm. Was all I could say due to the candy cane stuck inside my mouth. Hmm, yes, I forgot. You're too busy enjoying the Christmas snacks. And tut-tut. He said as he mockingly waggled a finger toward me. No matter, he continued. Even with a mouthful, you can still enjoy the spectacle of Tinseltown. We've got parties for hosting, marshmallows for toasting, and caroling out in the snow. And believe me, we have ghost stories. And the best bit is that it is all for you. The caroler must have seen the look of confusion on my face after he had finished speaking, as he quickly acknowledged it. You didn't think this was all for you. Of course it is. You are my twelfth day of Christmas, the finale to my carol. His explanation didn't help with my confusion. In fact, it actually made it worse, which is something that I think he also noticed. He sharply turned around on the spot and walked back over to the record player. He placed the needle back onto the record and the screaming symphony started to play again. I couldn't shake the feeling that these screams that I was hearing through the player were real, and just the thought of that being true made me tremble. I felt tears welling up in my eyes as I listened to the painful and haunting screams. I then recognized what tune the screams were performing. They were somehow edited so that they were in the tune of The Twelve Days of Christmas. I began to frantically wriggle and try to break free from the Christmas lights that were tightly binding my arms to the chair. The caroler watched on as I struggled, amused by what he saw. He took a step towards me and called out. I'm so glad you received those letters that I sent over to you. It means we get to have this festive fun. But before we deck the halls, let's finish my masterpiece. What do you say? Once again, I couldn't respond, due to the fact that I was still sucking on the candy cane. I think it was more of a rhetorical question this time, though. The caroler turned back around and stepped back over to where the record player was resting on top of a large wooden desk. I saw him rummage around the desk for a moment, and so I saw this as an opportunity. With his back turned, 
I was able to wriggle my arms and slightly loosen the Christmas lights that were tied around them. I could only try and free myself for a moment though, because the caroler swiftly turned back around to face me again. He was no longer holding the sleigh bells that he once had been. He had something different in his hand. He was now holding a fairly large nutcracker. The nutcracker was painted like a small man and had a fluffy white beard, like the ones from the famous ballet. It was menacingly staring at me with its wide open mouth. The caroler carried the nutcracker closer and closer towards me. I knew that it was not going to be cracking open nuts. It was going to be used on me. I wanted to scream, but I couldn't. He took one step at a time, building the suspense before the inevitable. He was almost next to me now, and the nutcracker was directly in my line of sight. Its small, painted eyes were staring directly into mine, almost as if they were mocking me or wanted to stare at their next victim. The caroler grabbed a hold of my index finger on my left hand and forced it to extend outwards, outwards towards the open mouth of the nutcracker. He placed the finger just inside of the mouth and then placed his hand on the back of the nutcracker, ready to make the mouth close sharply. Make sure you scream loudly and tunefully, he commanded me. He was bent down and was looking directly at me as he spoke. A frightening smile was across his face. I saw him about to pull the small wooden lever of the nutcracker. He thought that he had me exactly where he wanted me, but really, I had him exactly where I wanted him. In one swift movement, I pulled my right hand out of the Christmas light binding. I had managed to wriggle my hand and loosen them just enough for it to slip through. My hand slid free in one smooth motion, without much resistance at all. Once it was free, I rushed my hand up towards my face, towards the candy cane inside of my mouth. Ever since the caroler had forced the candy into my mouth, I had one goal in mind, to make it as sharp as possible, because for some reason, candy canes can be turned into a weapon with very fine point. This is exactly what I had been doing for most of the time that the caroler had been talking to me. I was just relieved that he hadn't caught on to the fact that that was what I was up to. I pulled the candy cane out of my mouth with my now free hand, gripping it with all of my strength. I thrust it outwards with as much force as I could. It landed straight into the caroler's left cheek. It tore straight through the soft tissue of his face and I felt it pierce through the other side of his mouth. I pulled the candy cane back through the hole that it had just created, red squirting out as I did. I thrust the candy cane downwards this time and this time, punctured a hole in the caroler's left thigh. With a quick twist, I broke the sharp tip off of the candy cane, leaving it embedded into his leg. The howl of pain that followed was louder than any I had ever heard before. I even heard a slight whistling sound that emanated from the large hole in his cheek. The caroler dropped to the floor, writhing in pain, and I knew that this was my chance to escape. I used my free right hand to pull and tug at the Christmas lights that were still holding my other hand captive. With a small amount of pulling, the lights loosened and I was able to free my left hand. Once free, I stood up from the Santa throne that I was bound to, and I started to run, making sure to give the caroler a heavy kick to the stomach on the way through. Once running, I didn't turn back to look at the damage that I had inflicted upon the man. 
I just kept my eyes forward and focused on trying to find a way out of this place. I started to run through the model village, passing through rows upon rows of small houses. I wasn't exactly sure where I needed to go, but I knew that there had to be an exit to this place somewhere. Behind me, I heard a faint noise, and it slowly began to grow louder and it took me a second to realize what it was. It was singing. I immediately knew that it was the caroler. I turned around and saw him standing up and looking out over the village. He was trying his best to sing loudly, but this was probably difficult due to the hole that I just put into his cheek. You better not run, you better not hide. You better not leave, I'm telling you why. The caroler is coming to town. The sound echoed across the model village and as soon as I heard it, I ducked down and tried my best to stay out of his view. I see you when you're screaming. I know when you're afraid. I know when you've been bad or good. You've been bad for goodness sake. He sang the words with a venom that previously wasn't in his voice. He was angry. He was angry that his twelfth day of Christmas was getting away. Staying crouched, I inched my way through the village, passing through more rows of beautiful decorated houses. I soon made it to the center of town, to where the large Christmas tree stood, also decorated to perfection. Rocking around the Christmas tree at the Christmas party chop. The caroler had suddenly changed what song he was singing, and it felt the panic rise up within me. There had to be a reason he changed to that particular song. He knew exactly where I was. You will get that sentimental feeling when you hear voices screaming, let's be jolly, and deck the halls with bowels of holly. I thought that I had successfully hidden within the village, but that must have not been the case. After all, the caroler knew the ins and outs of the model town more than I did. I'm sure he easily figured out exactly where I was. I knew there was no other option. I needed to leave this place right now. Hiding was pointless, so I needed to run. I stood up and began to sprint. I ran past the Christmas tree and past the statue of the caroler. The library whooshed past in a blur, and I was now running towards the small model church. I didn't stop running, but instead took a huge leap and jumped over the roof of the holy building. I landed on the other side, expecting to see more houses, but there weren't any. Instead, there was a large open area that was filled with rows and rows of small tombstones. I didn't have time to stop and read each tombstone, and I'm not even sure that there was anything written on them. It didn't concern me though because what caught most of my attention was the large tombstone in the center of this model graveyard. This tombstone was different. It was full-sized and even had a large hole dug in front of it. The tombstone read one name. Holly Drummer. My name. I stopped in my tracks at the side of the gravestone with my name etched into it. The sound of jingling bells made me remember where I was and that I needed to keep moving. The exit must be around here somewhere. I then heard the caroler begin to sing a different song. His voice was coming from closer than it had been before. Hark, hear the bells, these sweet silver bells. All seems to say, they lead away. 
The caroler stopped singing suddenly, almost like he was surprised by something. I was confused as to why he had abruptly stopped singing the carol. I turned around quickly to see where he was because the sudden silence was frightening, and it made me aware that I had no clue where he was exactly. I turned around and saw him. He was standing just behind the model church, and he was staring directly at me, pain and worry both present on his face. I then realized why he had stopped singing suddenly. He had just accidentally sung something he didn't mean to, and he knew it. He must have seen my eyes dart up towards the church steeple because he quickly darted forward, bells jingling with each step that he took. He was only able to limp due to the hole that I had put in his leg, but he would still be able to catch me if I wasn't quick enough. I ran towards the steeple, towards the silver bell, the silver bell that I hoped would lead away. I ran as fast as my legs would take me. I ran back through the cemetery and past the rows of small gravestones. The jingle of the bells was growing closer. I jumped over the last couple rows of the tombstones and was back at the church. I quickly moved to the side of the church, to where the steeple was. I could hear footsteps and the bells almost next to me now. I turned to look at the caroler hobbling up beside me. He took another step towards me and lifted his sleigh bells up into the air, ready to swing. I watched the bells getting swung towards me, and so I was able to quickly duck underneath them and watch as they quickly whooshed past the top of my head. As I ducked underneath the impromptu baseball bat, I managed to land a punch directly onto the caroler's thigh, right where the candy cane wound was. He fell to the ground as soon as my fist had connected with his leg. He let out a loud yell of pain, but he quickly changed his howl of agony into a more tuneful musical note as he began to sing. I ran past him and towards the steeple. I saw it as I approached the bottom of the tower that held the silver bell, the trap door. I ran towards it and pulled it open. Light hit my face. The last thing I heard before jumping through was the caroler singing. Hark, hear the bells. Sweet silver bells, all seem to say they lead away. Christmas is here. I'll see you next year. I landed on the hardwood flooring of an old and run-down building. I kept running and soon found an exit. The doorway led out onto an unfamiliar street, but that didn't matter. I kept running, trying to find anyone I could that could help me. Ding. The sound made me jump and it took me a second to realize where it came from. My phone. I forgot that I had it on me. I pulled it out of my pocket and saw that I had a text. Hey Holly, hark hear the bells. It's nearly Christmas time, which means your workload is going to increase. You're doing a great job and I hope that I will get to actually see you next year. Michael. I closed the text message and rang the police. It's been a year since all of this took place. The police were as helpful as they could be. They found the model village, but there was no sign of anyone anywhere. The caroler was gone. I quit my job of replying to emails as Santa Claus, and I moved to a new apartment straight away, as he knew exactly where I lived. As Christmas time approaches, I'm getting more and more worried now. 
I'm scared that the caroler will return. He said he would, and I have no reason to doubt that. In fact, last night while I was trying to sleep, I swear that I heard the faint sound of sleigh bells jingling just outside of my apartment. Every Christmas Eve, a monster challenges me to a game. Written by the Exo Guy. Growing up, I don't think we had a single moment free of struggle. We were a poor family that couldn't make ends meet most months, living basically day to day as we tried our best to stretch my father's income until the next paycheck came in. My father, God bless his soul, raised me by himself, and he was a hard-working man throughout his life. Mom passed, giving birth to me, her first and only child, and my father refused to remarry and to make things easier for him. I only ever loved one woman. He told me when we had talked about it once I had reached adulthood. That's not something you can replace. I'll take those feelings with me to the grave. Being the sole breadwinner in the house was a tall order to have to step up to. He was barely ever home, away for various jobs even during the weekends. In a sense, I sort of raised myself now that I think about it. But his absence never made me despise my father or grow distant towards him. Quite the opposite, in fact. It made the few precious moments we got to share mean even more to me. Some of those moments were during the holidays like Easter or Christmas when he didn't have to work. We lived out in the boonies in a small house that he had inherited when Grandpa had passed away. A cramped but comfortable place that was just the right size for the two of us. It was also close to the wilderness, so my father would go hunting for meat every once in a while. And don't question me on his methods of the legality of his actions. I can't answer either. Truth is, I never knew or cared. All that mattered was that he filled the fridge and kept me fed without having to spend a dime from our already limited budget. I grew up mostly on venison and wild rabbit. Pork and beef especially were a rarity. He tried to teach me from a young age to impart his knowledge onto me but I wasn't an eager learner. I had no problem with eating cute forest critters, I just couldn't hunt them or take them down myself. But my father still tried, and taking me out on a few hunting trips with him and our old dog, Charles, my father's companion into the wilderness. He wasn't a pure breed, of course. Just an old mutt that my father had rescued from a shelter. But he was big and had a keen sense of smell despite his age so he was a huge help in tracking down prey. The few times that I saw him in action, I was impressed. One such instance comes right to my mind. The three of us, Charles, my father, and I were out looking for a deer on a chilly autumn day. We had found tracks and followed them until we had spotted the deer, but my father had missed the shot and scared it away. Charles ran after the deer when it had bolted and we ran after the dog to not lose him. He led us on a wild goose chase through the forest for a few minutes, 
but we finally caught up to him on the banks of a river that crisscrossed the trees. What's he doing? I asked my father when we saw Charles pacing back and forth on the edge of the whirling waters. Uh, the deer probably jumped in and got swept by the currents. My father answered. The water had washed away the scent trail, so Charles is confused. And we followed the river downstream, and true enough, and we found the deer. Charles strutted over to it victoriously, giving us a good laugh. We had venison steak for dinner that night, and my father made sure to give Charles a big, juicy cut for his troubles. Anyways, my story takes place in that home when I was about eight years old. Despite our shaky financial situation, my father always tried to make the holiday seasons special for me. Now he could never afford fancy gifts like Game Boys, for example, when those were hot, but his gestures never went unappreciated. We mostly painted eggs together for Easter, or went out hiking before Christmas to find nice trees that we could take and bring home to decorate. But that particular Christmas hadn't gone down as planned. A few months beforehand, Dad fell ill and his condition had worsened until he was left bedridden. He didn't want to go see a doctor right away, saying that he only needed to rest up, but he eventually relented. After a round of tests, the doctors told him the one thing that nobody wanted to hear. He had pancreatic cancer, and it had already started spreading to other organs. All cancers are nasty, ugly affairs, but the pancreatic kind is especially vile. It gives nearly no symptoms until it is too late to do something about it, and that was the case for my father. Even with treatment, the doctors said that his chances for survival were as slim at best. But my father refused any treatment, so they predicted his last breath to happen sometime around New Year's. The news had devastated him, though he shielded me from them to the best of his ability. My only found out about it later, when I was older. As it stood, I only knew that he was sick. Being a young kid that thought of his father as a permanent part of their life, the thought that he might leave me never even occurred to me. But he deteriorated visibly each day, until the neighbor had to come over every so often to help him out with the most basic of tasks. Why not someone from our family, you might ask? Simple. We had very few living relatives, and the ones that we did have were deadbeats, never giving a crap about us except when they needed to borrow money. They wouldn't have helped take care of a sick man and they definitely wouldn't have taken me in after my father's passing. Listen, Nico. Dad told me one December evening after calling me into his bedroom. I'll be very sick for a while. I might never get better. His voice was weak and raspy, and I could tell that he had had difficulty getting those a few words out. You will, I protested. Maybe, he relented. But until that happens, you'll need to go and live with someone else that can take care of you. I don't want to, I said, stomping my foot down. I know, he admitted, a few tears forming around his eyes. But you have to do it for me, okay? I didn't stay around to listen anymore. I ran out of the room, bawling my eyes out. Daisy yelled after me, trying to stop me, but I couldn't. I didn't want to live with someone else. I wanted to stay with my dad. 
After I got outside, I made my way to my usual spot where I played most days. A dingy little treehouse that Dad had built for me a couple of summers back. But I loved the place. I climbed up into it to hide, having no plans to actually run away from home. I simply wanted to be alone for a while. In a place where Daisy couldn't reach me to drag me back inside. I heard her calling for me for quite some time, but she eventually relented and went home for the night. But I spent the night wide awake up in the treehouse, looking over the forest as I tried to think of a way to solve our problems. I didn't have any money, and with Christmas right around the corner and me being a child, I couldn't earn it fast enough either. So any ideas involving doctors or payment in general were out at first. I wasn't very religious either, so prayer never even crossed my mind. Santa... I decided after every other solution went nowhere. He always brought me what I wanted. I'll ask him to make dad better as my Christmas present. Not a bad plan. So long as you believed in Santa, of course. Which at that young age I still did. In my mind it was foolproof. A 100% guaranteed chance of success. I'd been a good boy all year. I helped out and never misbehaved so Santa would have to give me the present that I wanted. After the plan was hatched, I went back inside and went to bed. No point in ruining my good boy streak. The next day, I woke up first thing in the morning, got my dad's handsaw and ventured out into the woods all by my lonesome. With him being bedridden, we hadn't gone hunting for a Christmas tree that year, but we needed one for Santa, didn't we? That we did and I decided to take the matter into my own hands. I spent all morning and a good chunk of the afternoon searching, until I found a fur that I considered good enough. Don't ask me the exact species, I have no idea. Back then, they were all just Christmas trees to me. Anyway, I got it down all by myself, which proved to be a much more difficult task than I had expected. I got tangled in the branches as I tried to reach its trunk. I received plenty of scratches and nearly poked out one of my eyes at some point. But I succeeded, and I dragged it back home victoriously. Where were you? Daisy scolded when I entered the house. She had returned while I was away and she was ready to give me an earful for my outburst. Your father was worried sick for you. I let her scold me to her heart's content apologized and I brought the tree inside. Dad was impressed with me, and Diablo dragged himself out of bed to help me set up the tree. I realized in the meantime that he had hoped to spend one final Christmas with me, to give me some heartwarming memories to hold on to when he would be gone. But at that moment, I didn't consider it. I simply had fun carrying out our usual Christmas routine. We didn't have much to hang on the branches, no fancy lights and candles and whatnot. Just these same old tinsel and baubles that we had reused ever since I could remember. But the tree still turned out as stunning, and it was made even better for me by the fact that I went out and got it myself. I behaved after that, waiting for the days to pass one by one. Dad got visibly worse with each one to the point where he needed to be spoon-fed and couldn't get up to use the bathroom. But I still held out hope, convinced that once Christmas came, Santa would give me my present. 
It felt like years waiting for the 24th to arrive, but it swung around eventually. I stayed up waiting, knowing full well that I wasn't supposed to do that. After all, Santa skipped houses if the kids inside didn't sleep, but I wanted to meet him and ask him my wish face to face to make sure that it would come true. Evening came and passed and night settled outside, and I pretended to go to sleep after we ate dinner and Daisy had left. As soon as I was sure that Dad was asleep, I got up and made my way to the living room on my toes. With no place to really hide in the small room, I got behind the Christmas tree and waited. My hope was that the darkness would hide me for long enough until Santa came in. The only clock in the house was on the opposite wall, in full view but barely visible. I watched these seconds ticking away into minutes, seeing 10pm turn to 11. It was quite the ordeal to stand and wait for that long but I was determined. I nearly fell asleep at one point, but 11.59 rolled around and that sobered me up really good. I held my breath as I watched the sweep hand going until it reached the last second before midnight and then it got stuck, refusing to transition into midnight. And did the battery run out? I wondered. At any rate, I thought no big deal of it. Just because the clock had stopped didn't mean that midnight wouldn't come. I waited for a few seconds, for Santa to come down the admittedly small chimney. But as these seconds turned into a minute, I started to worry. Did he figure me out? Did I undo all of my goodness with this one stunt? Did he skip our house? I got out from behind the tree, walking out into the open as my worry turned to panic. I had blown it. No, I whispered with desperation. No, 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 please. I'm sorry, please. The words got stuck in my throat when I heard something from outside. The sound of skittering feet approaching the house from the surrounding woods. Tapping on the walls as something climbed to the roof. Santa came after all, and I waited for him with bated breath. The sounds of his rushing feet reached the roof, and then they stopped. I looked at the chimney intently, backing away slowly to give him room. Suddenly, something scraped against the bricks and mortar giving off a bristly sound, and before long, I saw a face emerge from the fireplace. Two beady black eyes came into view first, scanning the room from side to side and settling on me, and the rest of his head followed, looking like silly putty being forced through a tube. My wonder turned to terror as he advanced little by little, revealing a thin, centipede-like body with many small legs. After it was done and he was fully in the room with me, he stared at me for what felt like hours. His mouth contorted into a twisted grin, the corners of his lips cracking and spreading until they reached his ears. Hundreds of tiny needle-sharp teeth peered at me from inside his maw, yellowed and blasted with decay. What are you doing up so late, child? It questioned, bringing me out of my stupefaction. You should be sleeping. I... I'm waiting for Santa. I shuddered in answer. Are... are you him? 
You shouldn't be waiting for Santa, he answered. That makes you a naughty boy. I'm sorry, I mumbled, on the verge of tearing up. But I, I wanted... Let me guess, he said in a bored tone. He wanted to ask for a specific gift. What would it be? A new bicycle. Toys. Make daddy feel better, he's sick. I said with conviction. That's the only present I want. He raised an eyebrow hearing that and scurried closer to me. His long body coiled, surrounding me as his beady eyes examined me. The color in my face drained, and it took all that I had to keep from screaming and running away. Very well, he answered. Let us see your father. I might be able to offer you what you wish for. He pulled away, allowing me to lead him to dad's bedroom. I did so, opening the door slowly to reveal the dark room. Dad was in his bed sleeping, so Santa followed me inside. He pushed himself up, holding his spindly body above Dad with only a couple of hind legs. He does look sick, he admitted. One of his front limbs reached down, touching Dad's forehead. Very sick, but I can help. Then do it, please, I whispered. I will, but only if you play a game with me, he answered. If you beat me at it, I will cure your father. And, and if I lose, I asked, scared by the prospect. That's a surprise you'll have to find out. He answered and gave me another grin that sent chills down my spine. I wanted to refuse, but seeing Dan in that state broke my heart. He had done so much for me over the years that I could have let him down now when he needed me. What's the game? I asked. You've been a good little boy all year, so I'll let you choose, he said. I thought it over for a bit, trying to decide what game I was best at. I didn't know a lot of them, so my options were limited but I eventually settled on one. Hide and seek, I answered. His grin grew a bit wider hearing that. Okay, he said with satisfaction. I'll do the seeking and you'll do the hiding. If I can't find you for ten minutes, you win. Is that good? Yes, I answered, already thinking of potential hiding spots. Great. I'll count to 100, so scurry off and hide. He turned to face the wall and started counting out loud, so I bolted out of the room and left the house entirely. As tempting as it was to hide inside, I figured it would be the first place that he would look for me. My best chance was to get as far away as I could before he started looking. The moment that I got outside, I was taken aback by what I found. It was snowing pretty heavily only minutes prior, but now the bulky flakes were suspended in midair. There was no wind, no sound, no movement whatsoever, like the world itself paused for our game. It looked and felt surreal. Hearing the creature counting loudly inside, I blocked all of it out and continued running. I counted down from 100 in my head as I went, 
and I got pretty far away from home in that time. I hoped to make it to the treehouse, but it was too far away, so I dove into some bushes instead. Without anything on me to tell time, I do approximate as I waited for the 10 minutes to pass. I think it was two minutes and by the time that he left the house as well, I could see his monstrous figure leaving through the front door in the pale moonlight, but something was different. He moved faster, more erratically, his head turning from side to side in search of me. I thought that he didn't know about the treehouse, but I was wrong. He scurried past the bushes I was hiding in, going right for it. I caught a glimpse of his face when he passed by, and his expression petrified me. He looked scary before, but now he looked downright terrifying. The grin on his lips more evil than I thought possible. He really wanted to catch me. I saw him reaching the treehouse and climbing up with little effort. He pushed his body inside through the window, breaking some of the planks apart in the process. When he didn't find me out there, he let out an angry screech and started tearing the treehouse to shreds, until all that was left was a devastated husk. When he was done, he climbed down and looked at the forest for a few tense moments. I started realizing just how dire my situation was, so I retreated further into the darkness. But before I did, I saw his face contorting as something bubbled to the surface of his skin between his eyes. A deformed snout formed out of his flesh, and he started sniffing the air with it. I didn't wait to see if he would find me, knowing full well that he would. Instead, I got out of the bushes on the other side and ran away deeper into the forest. I estimated that maybe five minutes had passed, so I had five more to go. The sounds of his feet rushing after me came from behind, so I forced myself to run even faster. With hiding out of the question, I had to find a way to escape him for long enough. The way Charles tracked down prey using his sense of smell came to mind, so I knew that I needed to erase my scent somehow. The river, I decided, remembering how that deer managed to escape Charles and his nose. I ran into its general direction, deeper and deeper into the woods, and I eventually came across it. Luckily for me, it wasn't entirely frozen over. I stepped out on the treacherous ice until I felt it cracking beneath my feet. So, I shot a soul at it and broke it. I fell into the freezing water, feeling it pushing all the air out of my lungs as it seeped into my clothes and invaded my skin. It was frigid, and thermal shock or hypothermia were very real dangers. But they didn't worry me much at that moment. In fact, they barely crossed my mind. My only goal was to escape the horrific creature that was after me. The current pushed me under the ice and carried me along on its underside, scraping me against the jagged edges that had formed. I got scratched and bruised and the sensation left the tips of my fingers and my feet as the cold worked its way into my flesh, and my lungs burned for air. The ordeal didn't last for long, but it was excruciating. Half a minute later at most, the current spat me out on another break in the ice. I clung to it, trying in vain to drag myself out as I panted heavily. Prying my eyes open, 
I can barely make out the spot upstream where I jumped in. The creature reached it and paused, sniffing the air as puffs of steam left its nostrils. He looked around in confusion, so I ducked back down into the waters. And despite the heavy price that I paid, my plan had worked. Coming back up to the surface, I saw him crossing the river and continuing deeper into the woods. As the few minutes left of our game passed, I just waited, holding on for dear life. Worry finally overtook me as the dire nature of my situation set in. I would win, but I would freeze to death in the process, as I didn't have the strength to pull myself out of the river. And even if I did get out, I wouldn't make it on my way home to exposure. Went to the bone as I was, and with the temperature outside well into the negatives, the air itself would do me in. I was starting to slip away into unconsciousness when I noticed these snowflakes begin to fall to the ground again. That was a clear signal that the game was over, so I started yelling, Help! Please! Help me! My voice, although weak, carried far and wide through the night. I kept calling out, and soon enough, I heard the creature barreling towards me through the forest. He emerged from between the trees with a wide frown on his face that turned to a grin when he saw me. You're quite resourceful, Nicholas, he said as he approached the river. I must commend you for that and for defeating me. He stepped onto the ice, and I expected his huge body to break it easily, but it didn't. The ice didn't as much crack under his enormous weight. One of his appendages came up and he pointed it my way for me to grab it. I did and he effortlessly lifted me out of the water. Now hold on tight, we have to get you to shelter right away, he said as he put me on his back. I got my arms around his throat and he galloped through the forest with the same amazing speed he had displayed before. If not for these circumstances I was in, I might have enjoyed the bumpy, fast-paced ride. In no time at all, we were back home, and I went inside to change and warm up. You'll get a nasty cold tomorrow, but you'll live, he told me, and your father will as well. You won, so I will see you to my end of our agreement. He went to Dad's room with me in toll, and he placed his creepy feet along Dad's sleeping form. And color gradually returned to Dad's skin, and he drew in a deep inhale, but he didn't wake up. There, I have upheld my promise, he said and turned to leave the room. See you next year, Nicholas, and remember to be a good boy. He then laughed through the chimney, and I heard him scurrying off back into the forest. True to his word, my father woke up the next morning in perfect health, to everyone's utter shock except my own. I asked Santa to make you better as my gift. I explained to him and Daisy. I tried to tell them more to go into detail, but I couldn't. And I don't mean that in a corny, oh, I didn't want them to worry way, I literally couldn't. The words wouldn't travel up my throat, no matter how hard I tried to push them out. My father nodded and a few tears escaped his eyes. Tears of happiness, I thought at the time. But now I'm having doubts. That Christmas was the happiest one in my life, and getting to spend it with my father made me forget my ordeal. Later checkups with the doctors revealed that any trace of cancer was gone from his body, 
like it had never even been there. They questioned him, of course, but that's got them nowhere. So they called it a miraculous recovery and they left it at that. But my story doesn't end there, unfortunately. For the creature kept its other promises as well. Returning year after year on Christmas Eve for us to play again. And just as the first time, it allowed me to choose. And I chose every game under the sun over the years. I would research and practice them the whole year beforehand. And I never picked games based on luck. Just ones based on skill. That allowed me to remain one step ahead and win each and every time. Much to the creature's surprise. My father lived a long and healthy life, but he passed in the summer of 2020 at 72. I myself am 43, going on 44, and we maintained a close relationship throughout the years. His passing was devastating to me, but I found solace in the fact that I delayed it all of those decades ago. But then something else happened, and on the Christmas Eve of 2020, I finally lost my first game with the creature. He grinned wildly like he had done back when he chased me, and I prepared myself to be dragged off to some horrible fate. Instead, he left without saying a word. I don't know if he'll return again this Christmas, but truth be told, I might not live to see the 24th. A couple of months ago, I fell ill just like my dad had. I made appointments and got checked out, and my worst fear was realized. I was diagnosed with the same cancer that the creature got rid of in my father. Ever since, I've spent my time in and out of chemotherapy as I slowly deteriorated. Even though money is no longer a problem and medical knowledge has advanced so far, I'm still beyond saving. I'm lying on my deathbed now as I write this out, counting the moments, unsure of how many I have left. But I'm not scared for myself now. You see, I have a loving wife by my side and two young kids of my own. Two brothers of seven and nine years old, respectively. Two amazing yet naive kids that I love like nothing else in this world. And two are as pained to see me in this condition as I was to see my father. So yes, the creature might return this Christmas to play once more. But I worry that this time, I won't be one of the players. I've tried talking to my wife and sons about it, but it's just like all those years ago. The words about the creature won't come out of me. My only hope now is that I'll be six feet under come the 24th of December, so that my sins won't be passed down to my sons like they've been passed down to me by my father. I would gladly take passing over waking up healthy on Christmas morning. I'm a Navy SEAL. We encountered something unholy in the Mariana Trench. Written by Sniper 6407 In 2017, I was part of a secret maritime task force called the Leviathan Hunters. We belonged to the U.S. Navy and had close to 60 members who were mostly handpicked from DevGru, Delta Force, and various NATO UDD teams. We were the best of the best in maritime combat, and we specialized and trained to take down the deep sea threats and heavy gear. 
We would usually operate between one to eight thousand feet, even more. So we used specialized and classified suits designed by the best combat engineers. We were all extremely proficient at swimming, weapons use, and every underwater combat technique was battered into our heads as a second-hand nature. Given the rise of hostile activity in the deep oceans in the late 2010s, we frequently went on more operations. We would handle explosive disposal, naval sabotage, rescue, and intel. But we mainly found and destroyed extremely hostile deep-sea organisms with precision. The weapons we used were various modified underwater rifles and explosives, which were of an extremely high caliber due to the recoil of the guns being significantly lowered in the deep ocean. I joined while I was in Devgru, and I was offered a spot on the Leviathan Hunters. I was a member for six years when I went on one of our most eventful operations. We were going to the Mariana Trench. It was deeper than any other operation we had ever been on. So, we had to use experimental suits to survive the temperature and the insane pressure drops. Death would be mercy at those depths. And deep in the Mariana Trench, a distress signal from a U.S. research submersible had gone out a day before that we had been deployed there. The researchers in that submersible were goners, but what caught our interest was the fact that these submersible's readings still showed that living organisms were surrounding the submersible and they were taken as hostile. The Leviathan Hunters were deployed to investigate. We arrived on a large warship and dove directly into the trench in our suits. And as I put on the suit, I talked with the marine biologist and expert of the trench. Doc, I said, any chance of there being Leviathans down there? Possibly, the marine biologist said. It's hard to tell. The food sources down there are sparse if there are any at all. Then what the heck destroyed the submersible? The thing is, we don't know. Well, how deep can these suits go? 15,000 feet at the absolute maximum. Why that deep? The ocean is much deeper than we think. I can't even imagine what the freaking things are that live down there. There are horrors within the abyss. With the weight carrying us deeply, we descended fast into the abyss. I looked around to see the light disappearing, and I held onto my rifle as we descended. Two dozen other members descended along with me, and within a few hours, we had reached the destination the bottom of the deepest place in the world, at the exact coordinates of the submersible's location. As you can imagine, it was pitch black, 
and the darkness was pierced as we turned on our extremely bright helmet lights, and we searched for the wreckage. The research submersible was absolutely destroyed, and it was clear that it wasn't just the pressure that had done it. I walked over to the wreckage, while the others watched for any signs of possible movement, and I noticed something inside of the wreckage. I reached down, my light illuminating a wriggling, pale tendril hidden inside. I showed it to my team, and we were instantly on guard. It had been cut off recently. In the distance, my teammate spotted a red light blinking off in the far distance, only visible due to the sheer blackness of the trench. It was pretty far, but it was steadily approaching, and we couldn't hit it this far. When it got within 600 meters, we all began taking shots at it. As soon as the first bullet hit the red light, all of our suit's lights and our floodlights, pretty much any source of light, instantly cut out. Now, let me describe a feeling I hadn't felt in a long time. Fear. I had gone on raids on terrorist groups in the Middle East, assassinated the deadliest extremists and insurgency leaders, taken on monsters both human and not, been shot, been stabbed, been gassed. And while having a lot of this done to me, I've done my fair share as well to other countless people. And as a result, my sense of fear and adrenaline had significantly numbed. I had destroyed literal leviathans before, but at that moment, when all of our lights went out at the deepest place we could descend to, and as the red light approached, I felt every sense of fear and primal instinct come right back to me. That feeling I felt, it was primal, as if I recognized that red light from the worst nightmares of my ancestors and standing at the bottom of the ocean, holding a rifle. I had nowhere to run, nowhere to hide, nowhere to seek refuge. We were blind, and anything that we shot at, we would definitely miss. It was absolutely pitch black, darker than anything else I had ever experienced, even at depths close to these. It was the void, and there was only one thing penetrating it, and it was something that I couldn't see, something that I didn't want to see. It approached, and no matter how closely it got, it seemed to never grow or shrink. At this point, I had no idea where my teammates were. My lights, communications, and electronics, they weren't working and the red light was rapidly approaching. I was stepping back blindly, blindly into the void, slowly, as that red light approached. It was only 20 feet away when it suddenly cut out, and everything turned black. All thoughts of my mission, all thoughts of my teammates, my family, and my country, 
all that I had fought so hard for, instantly it disappeared as I turned the other direction and ran. The water resistance made my footsteps feel like an eternity, and I would never escape this thing, but I sure as heck tried my best. I suddenly felt a commotion as water rushed around me. Objects brushed past me, and suddenly my headlight, and only my headlight, turned on. And I screamed. I was mostly used to some pretty extreme stuff, but this was something else entirely. My teammates, all who were married and had kids, the people I knew and who I had fought alongside and I would die for, were now all ripped to complete shreds. Every single one of them, and their suits too, were torn apart, their organs ripped, and their skin pale and crushed by the immense pressure of the water. Their faces were just floating there, drifting lifelessly in the water. The deep water was flooded with crimson, and I saw the floating head of one of my teammates drift in front of me with an expression of horror that I cannot even begin to describe. I dropped my rifle and I ran. I ran slowly, but I ran, my dying light illuminating the bare seafloor as I constantly felt something brush against me. I was running, closing my eyes, slowly making my way across the seafloor. My steps dragged out as I kept screaming, and screaming until my lungs were hoarse. I coughed up so much crimson. The suits were supposed to give us air for up to ten hours, and I ran and ran and ran across the seafloor screaming and constantly turning back, only to see nothing. But there was something, something hiding within the pitch black of the ocean, and the primal sense of utter dread was rising every second, besides the fact that I could neither see, feel, or hear anything near me anymore. But I could sense that there was something, something horrible, Worse than anything I could imagine within that blackness. I must have ran for an hour or two within the time that I went. And then I suddenly stopped. Only a few meters away from me, illuminated by my headlight, was an enormous, endless, black trench within the Mariana Trench. It was extremely deep. Even from my limited visibility, I could tell that it was a true abyss. Something swam past me, something huge, and I turned to see that red light approaching me at breakneck speed. Any chance of leviathans down there? With no other options, I jumped into the abyss, the trench within the trench. Possibly, it's hard to tell the food sources down there are sparse if there are any. I sunk deeper and my lungs burned as I screamed and screamed, and my headlight touched nothing, illuminating nothing, as I descended into the void. 
Well, then what the heck destroyed the submersible? I kept sinking. And the horror was so bad that I wanted to end myself. I even tried ripping my suit off to expose and do it that way. We don't know. I looked beneath me to see nothing but utter blackness envelop me. And it just kept on going. And I wondered how deep the ocean truly was. I had devoted so much of my life to it. And yet now it was going to end me. Well, how deep can these suits go? I sunk and continued on for hours. Time became irrelevant, and I was stuck in my mind, and I constantly punched my helmet, and the fear was driving me mad. Well, 15,000 feet at the absolute maximum. I couldn't form thoughts. The utter dread was screaming at me that something huge and something unknown was watching me, following me as I sunk to my demise. I closed my eyes and screamed, red in pieces of my lung splatter in the inside of my helmet. Why that deep? Hours and hours passed, my oxygen slowly ran out, and I finally hit the floor of the trench. I opened my eyes, the taste of copper in my mouth, my throat burning as I slowly walked forward, madness and fear pounding into my mind. I was at the bottom, the true end to the deepest point, the deepest place on earth. The ocean is much deeper than we think. I walked aimlessly, waiting for my oxygen to run out so I could be granted the sweet bliss of death. But in the distance, I saw that red light, that red light blink into sight, and it approached quickly as I screamed once more. I can't imagine the things that live that deep. I wanted death and nothing else. I ran towards the light as it approached, screaming and closing my eyes and waiting for the beautiful feeling of my flesh ripping as I died and left this wretched abyss. I ran and ran until I slowly stopped and I opened my eyes. The red light was in front of me and my headlight was illuminating it. I looked up and floating in front of me, at the deepest point on earth, I saw an organism so horrifying, perfect, beautiful, dreadful, unholy, demonic, eldritch, and I fell to my knees and experienced a fate much worse than death. There are horrors within the abyss. I thought the stories we told at the campsite were made up, written by the saddest little boy. Let me start by saying that I love my job. I've been working as a camp counselor for nearly two years now. We facilitate all kinds of youth camps, school camps, church camps, kids, birthday parties, you name it. To me... It's the best job in the world. Our campsite is located on a farm just outside of a small town. It's away from people and it's entirely off the grid. So we generate our own electricity and filter the farm's water. 
Over the years, we built cabins, bathrooms, and a main dining hall, all with our own bare hands. We're quite proud of our little campsite. The best part is showing the kids the wonder of the outdoors. I know it's not as comfortable as being in your own house, but it is fun. We get kids off of their phones for a few days, and suddenly they see, hear, and experience all these amazing new things. This is my little slice of paradise. Or rather, it was. I experienced something that slightly changed my perspective of this campsite. Let me start from the beginning. I agreed to facilitate a camp for 24 new high school students, all between 13 and 14 years old. They looked quite unenthusiastic, but I knew that I could change that. This group was small enough that I only needed one other camp counselor working with me, so my good friend Robin joined me for the weekend. We had great chemistry together, to the point that sometimes I believe the two of us have more fun on these camps than the kids do. We go through the regular camp program for the first day and night. You know, games, songs, and unhealthy food. Great fun. On the second morning, we make a point to wake the kids up super early and continue where we left off. However, the second night is where everything changes. It's time for my absolute favorite camp game. You will all have to follow the lifeline. I announce to the small crowd of bewildered faces... Robin cracks a smile next to me. I explain that the two of us would march the group into an abandoned field somewhere on the farm, in complete darkness, with no torches allowed. Then, once at this location, the kids would have to navigate their way, one by one, through the darkness, following a tight string that had been woven around and through various trees and bushes, forming a chorus. This string was their lifeline. They would have to follow it or get lost in the dark, all alone. The kids were tentative at first and begrudgingly left their torches behind, but they eventually followed me and Robin away from the campsite with a quiet excitement about the night activity ahead of them. Every 13-year-old kid secretly enjoys going somewhere spooky when it's pitch dark outside. I know the route to the lifeline area like the back of my hand, and after about two kilometers of walking, we had arrived at an open field, intersected by a small channel with ankle-deep water which was densely forested on either side. From the outside, walking into the forest looked like walking into a wall of black ink. You simply disappear into the complete and utter darkness. Alright everyone, the lifeline will lead you safely through the forest. Each of you will take hold of the lifeline and walk it to the other side. Once everyone is through... We'll head back to camp, 
I was holding back a smile as I explained this part to the kids. Their eyes now wide with the childish fear of the dark. The string they had to follow would take them through the water and weave them around, and under and through various trees. It was only about 80 meters in total, but it felt like it lasted forever in the dark. The darkness and feeling of being alone in the dense forest only seemed to lengthen the experience. But first, the best part. I sat the kids down on the grass near the entrance of the forest, where the lifeline could be seen tied to a branch on one end and disappearing into the darkness towards the other. With the most serious facial expression and tone of voice that I could muster, I told the kids the story of the Owl Man. This strange, human-like creature inhabits this forest. It glides from branch to branch, waiting in anticipation for a lost camper to wander too deep into the darkness. Once it catches them all alone, with nobody else around to help, it swoops down and eats them, but not before making this call. I opened my hands over my mouth and did my best impersonation of a horned owl. I had gotten pretty good at doing that call. The dead silence of the kids confirmed that. While I was embellishing the story of the owl man to the kids, Robin snuck off into the forest where he would perch himself in a tree near the middle of the chorus and made those exact same owl noises. It was time to give these kids a good scare. I reassured the kids that hopefully nothing bad would happen to them and I sent them off one by one into the dark forest. Each kid clutched the lifeline tightly. Even if some of the boys were acting as if they weren't a tiny bit scared, it wasn't long before I started hearing the first screams near the middle of the chorus. Some of these were accompanied by swear words. Almost all were high-pitched. This truly was a fun experience. I took the shortcut route to the other side of the forest once I figured all the kids were through. Robin was already there when I had arrived, cheerfully laughing together with the kids. They had all been frightened by the same silly story and were comparing their screams of terror after being jump-scared by the Owl Man or Robin. I was about to begin the journey back to camp when one boy interrupted me and told me that he had lost his beanie somewhere along the lifeline chorus. Seeing as I knew the chorus back to front, I sent Robin and the group back to the campsite ahead of me while I went and looked for the missing beanie. I entered the lifeline chorus from the back of the forest and worked my way towards the original entrance. It was pitch dark out and I strained my eyes to see the forest floor. I didn't want to miss the kid's beanie, so I walked extra slow. 
After about 15 minutes of meandering through the darkness, I heard a sound that nearly made me jump out of my shoes. It was the owl noise. I swore out loud, thank goodness none of the kids were around. And with that, my fright quickly turned to annoyance. I can't believe I had gotten caught out by the very prank I had made up. It wasn't even that good of an impersonation that time. Robin, what the heck are you still doing in that tree? I thought I told you to take the kids back to the campsite. I didn't even have to finish my sentence. I felt my heart drop into my stomach. I had watched Robin take the kids the long way around the forested area. He wasn't in here. I was alone. The noise came again. But it was off somehow. I couldn't put my finger on it. It didn't sound like me or Robin impersonating an owl. It sounded like something was impersonating us. The voice was raspy, strained even. But it didn't sound entirely human. More like those old home videos where cats would speak English words. Except this was an owl call, and it was growing in volume above me. It came again. For the first time on this farm, I was actually scared of what was in the dark. I trembled as I looked up toward the spot where Robin always would perch himself. The dim moonlight that broke through the tree line allowed me to make out a faint figure. I felt sick. Its shape resembled a human, somewhat, but it was bigger than me, hunched over in the tree, like an animal ready to pounce on its prey. Its arms were easily twice the length of its body, and it looked as if it could reach down and grab me where I stood. Its fingers were slender, but long enough that it could probably take me around my waist with one hand. And its face. God, its face. There were only two features. An impossibly wide mouth. Like a horizontal slit spanning its whole face. With hundreds, no thousands of small needle-like teeth. And two giant round eyes. Bright yellow like a horned owl. It stared directly at me. Making eye contact. Those round, yellow eyes burning itself into my memory. I felt like it could see my tremendous fear in that moment. I wanted to scream, but my body wouldn't allow it. I was frozen in place, paralyzed. This had to be some kind of horrible nightmare. It had to be. The hideous creature slowly started standing up, revealing that it definitely towered over me. Its body clicked and cracked as it stood as if its bones hadn't moved in a while. Eyes glued to me. It opened its gargantuan mouth wide, like a snake unhinging its jaw. And it screamed this time. I can't remember when, but I started sprinting. I was too terrified to think, moving only on the pure basal instinct of fight or flight. I had never run this quickly before, my feet seemed to know the way. 
so I was out of the forest in no time. I didn't stop or look back. I didn't need a second look to know I never wanted to see that monster ever again. Not long after, my lungs started burning but my legs kept going. I didn't dare slow down until I got back to the campsite. I collapsed onto the ground once I reached the familiar surroundings of the dining hall and cabins. My once a peaceful paradise. My mind was whirling. That couldn't have been real. But I saw it. I tried convincing myself that it was all just a hallucination. After all, I had made the owl man up, hadn't I? Even so, I couldn't get the image of its horrifying teeth out of my mind. And those eyes. Bro, how did you get back here before us? Robin broke my train of thought. He was just now arriving with the kids from the other side of the campsite, opposite from where I had ran. And did you find the beanie? I didn't dare speak about what just happened. We simply put the kids to bed in their cabins and walked towards our own. My mind was still racing. I didn't know whether I could believe my own eyes or not. Maybe it was just the utter darkness and feeling of being alone that made me see something that was impossible. It wasn't long before my thoughts were once again interrupted. That noise... I realized that I had never experienced true terror until that moment, that along with overwhelming guilt. I had just brought that thing to the kids. I quickly turned to Robin to see that he had a gleeful smile on his face, the kind that kids have when they see something cool. Dude, look. Robin pointed towards a horned owl that was perched atop the dining hall. I can't believe we actually have one on the campsite. That owl call you made is spot on too. I know my call is pretty accurate. I had copied it from the owls that I'd heard living on the farm before. This one, however, still gave me the impression that it was copying me instead. Mocking me even. It watched us all the way to our cabin where I ended up writing this post instead of going to sleep. All night, it kept its eyes on us through our little cabin window. No, it kept its eyes on me. Direct eye contact with its round, yellow eyes. The Snowmen Hunt at Midnight Written by Certain Emergency 122 We found the above message scrawled into the snow on our doorstep. Someone must have written it recently, because the snow was falling heavily enough that it would be covered in only a few minutes. I looked around us at these surrounding houses, but all the doors were sensibly shut. No one else was outside. We had moved to Penville from the city because we wanted to live in a small, quiet, and peaceful town where nothing ever happened. <laughs> Go figure. I had no idea who the culprit could be. My wife said, joking, Do you think Santa did this? 
I tried to return her smile, but it took a serious effort. The message troubled me more than I wanted to admit. Frankly, although, I would never say so aloud. The snowmen in this town creeped me the heck out. We hadn't built the one in our front yard, no. Like all the rest of them, it had popped up overnight, fully grown. And when I mentioned it to our next-door neighbor, Mike Katz, a thin and hard-faced man who was in his late 60s, he had dismissed it as the work of a bored teenager. No, don't let it bother you, he had said, brushing off my attempts at helping him shovel off the snow from his driveway. The kids in this town have nothing better to do than drink and cause trouble. All the snowmen were identical. Each one had two big black buttons for eyes, nubs of carrots for noses, and two twig arms. Whoever had created them had also lent them an army of black felt hats and gray scarves. If it had been up to me, I would have long since destroyed the snowman in our front yard, stopping it until they reverted back to harmless pieces of snow. But Emily loved them. She thought that they were adorable. As I looked into the black eyes of the snowman in our yard, revulsion crawled over my skin. Its eyes threw back distorted reflections of our Christmas lights. They seemed to say, I know something you don't. I was being dumb, but Emily wrapped one arm around me, giving me a curious glance, and I realized that the silence between us had stretched out too long. I tore my gaze away from the snowman and said, Santa probably had one of his elves do it. He's too busy for this kind of crap. You know, millions of houses to break into, hundreds of thousands of chimneys to stuff himself down, kids to turn into coal. She laughed. Oh, come on, Ellie, let's go. It's freezing out here. I allowed her to guide me back inside, but when I threw a glance over my shoulder to read the message again, I saw that a fresh layer of snow had already buried it. A loud scraping noise woke me up. I remained under the covers for a few minutes, my drowsy mind unable to figure out the source of the noise. The Christmas lights that we had also hung up around the bedroom threw blinking patterns of light across the walls. I rolled over, arms outstretched and realized that the other side of the bed was empty. Emily must have gotten up. She often struggled with insomnia and it was a normal occurrence to find her curled up in an armchair in the middle of the night, reading a trashy romance novel and drinking chamomile tea. The noise repeated itself right as I was about to fall back asleep. It set my teeth on edge, like listening to nails on a chalkboard. By now, I had pinpointed its location. It came from the bedroom window, probably a tree branch scratching against it. I yanked the pillow over my head, but that didn't help muffle the noise. With every loud, repetitive scrape, sleep danced further out of my reach. Finally, I gave up and fumbled for the clock on my nightstand, and the glowing numbers had told me that it was close to 4am. Unbelievable. I sat up and threw the pillow on the ground, determined to snap that annoying tree branch in half. When I looked out the window... My body turned into ice. A snowman stood right outside, 
its face pressed up against the glass. Its arm tapped at the window and its black button eyes shone with a malevolent intelligence, an alien cunning. Its mouth had been stretched into an obscene leer, the buttons more widely spaced than before. And then rational thought reasserted itself, and I shook off the lingering cobwebs of unease. Someone had looked in on us sleeping and decided to play a prank. That was all. Anger followed swiftly on the heels of that realization. I staggered over to the window on legs that felt like stiff wooden stilts and jerked the curtain closed in one quick motion. As soon as these snowmen disappeared behind the rough dark cloth, I could breathe again. It wasn't tapping at the window. The wind had moved its arm and some complete idiot thought that it would be funny. Even so, I didn't want to stay in the bedroom anymore, and I could forget trying to fall asleep. If Emily was still awake, I would just tell her what had happened, and we could laugh about it together. I walked down the hallway that led to the living room, turning on one light after another. My heart slowed its frantic pace, as the hard fluorescent lights clicked on and banished all the shadows. Christ, it was cold in here. I had Emily opened a window and forgotten to close it. I turned the corner and stopped. Stopped thinking, stopped walking, even stopped breathing. A thick trail of red covered the floor, leading from the armchair in the living room to the kitchen. It dripped down into the cracks between the wooden boards of our floor and stained the edges of our cream-colored rug. After an interminable amount of time, I managed to say, Emily, are you there? No response. I went back into our bedroom and dialed the police with shaking hands. I don't remember what exactly I said to the dispatcher, only that she needed to send people here now. Then, with that done, I got old Trusty out from the safe. If the person who had done this to Emily was still around... I would need to protect myself. A loud buzzing noise filled my head and I couldn't stop flinching every time the wind rattled the windows in our small house. After leaving the bedroom, I followed the trail, my mind still reeling in disbelief and shock. Only hours earlier, we had been joking around and discussing our plan to see Emily's parents for dinner. Surely, the world would return to normalcy at any moment, right? She's gone whispered a cold and matter-of-fact voice inside my head. No one can lose that much and still be alive. I shoved it aside, refusing to acknowledge it. She couldn't be gone. She couldn't. More red covered the kitchen floor tiles, a counter, and stools. It painted the walls. Some of it had even been splattered across the ceiling. I noted all of this but didn't slow down. The trail led out the front door, which was wedged open a few inches because of a scarf that had been caught at its bottom. A very familiar scarf, though it took my mind a few minutes to figure out that I had last seen it wrapped around the snowman in our front yard. It was so sodden that it looked black instead of gray. I dropped it with a cry of disgust, pushing my way out the front door and into the howling darkness of the storm. Emily! I screamed my wife's name, and the wind whipped it away from me. I took a couple of steps forward, 
Snow fell thickly into my eyes, it blinded me, and I swiped at it impatiently. Panic gnawed at my stomach like a frenzied, hungry rat. Emily, can you hear me? The wind rose to a high-pitched shriek, drowning out my voice, and I stopped. I would have given anything to see Emily's face right now. Despair threatened to swallow me and told myself to get a grip. The police might have already been on their way, but I had no intention of wasting any more time. I would go out and search for her myself. I would search the entire town if I had to. Decision made, I headed back inside, eager to grab my car keys and get going. A snowman barred the way. It couldn't have been there before, I would have seen it. It was ridiculously tall, made of seven or eight lumps of snow stacked together instead of three, and stained with red so much of it. I swallowed hard, digging my nails into my palms. Someone must have put it here. Maybe the same someone who had taken Emily. They. Impossibly, the snowman moved. Its long stick arms stretched out as if reaching for me. I backed away, my stomach sick with dread, unable to even scream. Terror had punched all the breath out of me. Part of me clung to the idea that this was an elaborate setup, that this couldn't actually be happening. But a larger part of me remembered the message from earlier. The snowmen hunt at night. Every time that I looked away, it advanced to me. I couldn't tell how it was moving forward. Only that it was. For every three steps I took backwards, it took one step forward. Eventually, I nearly tripped over myself because I didn't dare take my eyes off of it. A cold gust of wind sent the front door banging against the wall, and I cringed away despite myself, nearly sending a bullet straight through the floor. I caught movement out of the corner of my eye. More snowmen had gathered outside. Their button eyes glinted under the Christmas lights. Going out the front door wasn't going to work. They would simply surround me, pull me down, and... and... and what? As if to answer my question, the snowman's entire body began to transform. It rippled, melting, and reforming. The black buttons that served as its mouth exploded off of it shooting off in every direction and bouncing off the walls. Its twig arms fell to the floor, and four long limbs made of snow and ending in sharp icy claws took its place. A hole opened up in the middle of its featureless face, right below its button eyes, and it gaped impossibly wide. Needle-sharp teeth lined its mouth in concentric circles, it shot towards me, moving impossibly fast. Adrenaline rushed through me. I raised my piece and took a shot. Three times, six times, nine. And then it was on me. Its weight knocked me to my feet, and I slammed into the wall painfully, nearly losing what was in my hand. I tried to shake off the purple spots that swarmed at the edges of my vision, knowing that if I didn't get up now, I would be a goner. I managed to scramble up to my feet before it descended again, viper quick. Its mouth closed over my outstretched arm instead of my head, swallowing both it and what was in my hand. 
I continued firing into it, not knowing how much I had left. But then it clicked empty, just as a sharp, piercing pain shot through my shoulder. It retreated, and I stared uncomprehendingly at the stump that was now on my arm. It had taken the bite on my hand and my arm off too. My knees unhinged and I slid down against the wall, landing hard. This was the end. It lowered its head, preparing for the final strike. When I met its button eyes, I saw a whole winter wonderland in them. A magical place where Christmas never ended. But the people there weren't happy. They huddled next to each other, their faces drawn with agony and misery. There were hundreds of them. Someone familiar stood at the very front, her lips blue, and her hands black and frostbitten. The tears froze on her face even as she cried. A huge, monstrous beast that wore red and white prowled on the edges of the group. His breath steamed in the air. I couldn't see what he looked like clearly, but I did understand that this place was his den, his feeding place. Abruptly, sirens wailed close by, dragging me back to myself. As I watched, the thing that had been a snowman tilted its head to one side and it scuttled away from me, heading out the front door. It was leaving. Hopefully, it would never come back. This time, I didn't fight the waves of dizziness whomping me. I let myself pass out. After the hospital had released me, I did some investigating of my own, hitting up the town library and combing through old newspaper articles, journals, and books. The police were completely uninterested in my version of the events, and I can't blame them. I know how crazy I sound. But get this. It turns out that Penville isn't so quiet and peaceful after all. Every year since the early 1900s, People have gone missing on Christmas Eve. It's usually only one person, but sometimes it's entire families. And I noticed something else after I left the hospital. All the snowmen were gone from everyone's yards. Even their hats and scarves have completely vanished. I tried to talk to Mike about it since I figured that he is to know about what's going on here. But I might as well have been talking to a brick wall. Other than telling me to move away... He wouldn't say anything. He just shut the door in my face. Again, I know how crazy I sound. Everyone wants me to move away or at least shut up. But in one year's time, I'll prove it to you. I plan on staying right here until next year as Christmas Eve rolls around. If I'm right, and the snowmen will reappear in everyone's yards. Like magic. And when they do... I'm going to find some way to bring my wife back here. The Christmas Trees Are Hunting Me Written by Veristal It was already snowing again by the time I pulled up to the edge of the tree lot. The only sign was a dubious-looking piece of particle board propped up against a small and scraggly fur, and I couldn't help but think that the puny tree had been relegated to sign holder because no one would want to buy him. I glanced at the dash clock. 7.32. Crap. I had to hurry up before. 
My phone began to buzz on my coat, and cursing under my breath, I dug it out. It was Neil, either calling to tell me Merry Christmas, or to ramble on about something that happened on his family's vacation to Florida. I almost didn't answer it at all, but I worried that there was always an outside chance that it was work-related. Though he had been gone to Orlando for almost three days now, Sighing, I hit the button and said, hello. Hey man, just calling to wish you a Merry Christmas. You're going home this year, right? Grimacing, I try to keep my voice light. Yeah, I'm almost there now. I'm stopping to pick up a tree on the way out to Sarah's parents' house. They've already got one up, but I promised the kids, you know. His laugh crackled into my ear. You're cutting it kind of close, aren't you? Tonight's Christmas Eve. Do you think they're even open? Not if you keep running their mouth, they won't be. Yeah, they're supposed to stay open until late, according to the website. The only one I could find this far out that was on the way. Sarah's parents had loaded and they live out in an estate about an hour from here. I paused and then to my surprise, I went on talking. I just, uh, I don't want to mess this up, you know. Me moving to Nashville for work last fall and then working through Christmas last time, it didn't go over well. We never said that we were separated, but I kind of feel like I need to prove to her and the kids that I'm still invested and I want to do better, you know. I felt a flush of embarrassment warming my cheeks as I stared out at the increasing snowfall. Neil was a cool boss overall and we got along well but I wasn't used to sharing personal stuff with him. When he spoke next, his voice was more serious but still kind. Hey, I'm sorry, buddy. I knew you were living apart, but I didn't realize how strained things had gotten. Family comes first, man. You take the time you need on the holiday, and when we get back to it, let's talk about options to make things work better for you and your wife, okay? I started in surprise. Um, yeah, okay, Neil. I, I appreciate it. I love my job, and I hope you know that. I just want to be a good husband and a father, too. No worries, man, I get it. Have a good Christmas. Wiping my eye, I put my phone back on my coat, and I got out. And the place had a few strings of dancing lights hung up past the wooden fence and the tree sentry but I didn't see any Christmas trees in the space beyond. Instead, it was just a small empty field that led to the edge of a forest of sorts, though none of the trees looked at all Christmassy. Panic filling my chest, I started forward before noticing the small trailer parked further down on my side of the split rail fence. Heart thudding, I jogged over to the trailer and knocked on the door, praying that there was someone inside. After my second round of knocks, a heavy-set woman in her fifties opened the door, staring down at me with mild interest as she absently gnawed on a candy cane. Can I help you, mister? I tried to give a winning smile despite being cold, wet, and worried. Um, yeah, I need to get a tree. Please tell me you still have Christmas trees for sale. The woman studied me for several moments rolling her cane from one side of her mouth to another. Waited a bit late, didn't ya? Trying to keep the smile on my face, I nodded. I did, 
I've been driving since 4 this morning and I promised my kids that I would bring them a tree. The woman's face changed slightly as her eyes drifted from me back to the car. The kids with you, are they? Maybe your wife? I shook my head. No, they're all my grandparents waiting, which is why I was hoping to get a tree and get back on the road. I started digging into my pocket for my wallet. I can pay cash and I don't mind paying extra for it. You know, the um inconvenience of Christmas Eve. She was already waving her hand at me. No need for that, it's a Christmas tree lot. After all, not much of an inconvenience to style Christmas trees. The woman looked me over again before giving a small frown. The main lot is empty though. Sold the last ones this morning. My stomach began to sink when I thought of something. The main lot, meaning that there's another lot that you can get me a tree from. Her frown deepened. Sell, yes. Get, no. The property goes on back for some ways and past that stand of hardwood is the kind of trees that you're talking about. For the kind of folks that want a more authentic tree getting experience. She shot me a look. Or fellas that come on Christmas evening. I stared at her for a moment, trying to see if she was joking or if there was any wiggle room. So you're saying that I would have to go and chop down the tree and drag it out myself? She shrugged. Only if you want to. You get your pick for $100 even. I glanced back towards the dark woods outside, the halo of the lit but empty lot. I don't have the tools for that. The woman sniffed. All you need is an axe. I shot her an irritated look. Do I look like I have an axe? She arched an eyebrow at me. Mister, I don't make a habit of studying the appearance and behavior of those who might be so inclined as to carry an axe with them. I tend to, especially around the Yuletide, endeavor in mainly two areas. Selling trees is one. Drinking eggnog while watching my stories is the other. And based upon your tone, I'm beginning to think I'm better off applying my time and talents to that second pursuit. I raised a hand as I shook my head. No, no, just do you have an axe that I can borrow? The woman bit off the tip of her candy cane and crunched it as she stared out at the snow. My one you can rent. Ten bucks for an hour. You break it, you have to buy me another one, of course. Nodding, I started digging out the cash. Are there lights back there where the trees are? There are not. Other than the moon, the sun, and the stars. Sighing, I reached back into my wallet. Can I also rent a flashlight or a lantern? Her face lit up in a broad smile. Why, yes, you may. Stupid, of all the freaking dumb... I was pushing through the hardwoods now, and while they had seemed dense from a distance, up close, I saw that they were actually just a few yards deep before breaking out into a much larger expanse on the other side. A snowy hill sloped down from where I came up, dipping and curving off before swelling into a much greater incline on the far side. And on that far side, dotted here and there, were some of the largest, most beautiful Christmas trees I had ever seen. I felt a combination of awe and fear as I stared out at them. They were very impressive, 
but even the smallest of them had to be, what, 20 or 30 feet tall. It might be that Sarah's parents' house could accommodate such a beast with their giant rooms and cathedral ceilings, but I had to find something that I could actually cut down, drag out, and tie to the roof of my car. And climbing up the hill, I scolded myself. There were bound to be smaller trees too, maybe deeper in where they wouldn't get as much light because of the big ones around them. Holding up my little lantern, I pushed into the thick dark between a pair of green giants. The air was different here, thicker and it shot through with the smell of wood and sap and something else that I didn't recognize. Wrinkling my nose, I kept going, but all of the trees seemed enormous, especially this close up. Nothing that I could manage to get out by myself. After walking for several minutes, I finally started to notice, if not smaller trees, at least less of them. The ground was sloping down again, and down in the small valley there was a slight rise. And on that rise, there were much smaller trees. Manageable, reasonable trees of the sort that I could chop down and bring home to the family. Grinning, I stumble-slid down the bank to the smaller hill and started looking at them. It was funny. They all looked almost identical. Not just the kind of tree they were, whatever that was, but everything. Every branch, every needle, appeared at a glance to be represented on every tree. If not for the overpowering scent of them, I would have thought I had stumbled into a backwoods artificial tree farm. <laughs> Laughing at the thought... I pulled off my glove and reached out to touch the nearest tree. No, it was definitely real and had the branch pulled away from me. Frowning, I reached forward to touch the tree again. This time, the branch recoiled before I reached it, and when I kept reaching, it lashed out, whipping me across the hand. I yelled then, more out of surprise and fear than pain and began to back up even as I sensed more motion around me. The smaller trees around me were all moving, not just their branches, but their whole bodies were shifting as they moved through the snow toward me, as though racing to surround me. I started backpedaling quicker, and was almost off the hill when I felt a fragrant branch snake around my left arm. They were grabbing me, trying to, I didn't know what, but I had to get away. I tried pulling my arm free, but I barely moved at all, and to my horror, I felt the branch tighten its grip even as another tree began reaching out toward me. Stifling a scream, I had to the branch with my axe, freeing myself even as the freezing air split with a sharp, keening cry. I felt the ground underneath me begin to shift as I turned and began to run. After the next few steps, the earth was steady again, but looking back, I thought I could make out the ground shifting beneath the snow, even as the trees began pursuing me. This was impossible. It was all impossible. And yet something in me knew it was all very real. All very deadly. I had to get away from these trees or whatever it was beneath the ground, or I didn't know, but I had to get away, to get back to my car and away from this place before these things got up to me. I had completely lost my bearings, but I had a dim sense that I was going in the wrong direction. 
The light of my car were more over to my right. Right. It didn't matter. I had to keep running. I had to try to put distance between me and a dozen or so trees pushing through the snow toward me. And I was managing to do that. I couldn't see well, but when I held my lantern up and looked back, I could see that the trees or whatever was beneath them was slowing down. Maybe it was tired or maybe it had given up. But no, they were still moving toward me, just not as quickly. Looking ahead, I saw a washed out gully that seemed to split in two further down. Hoping that I had time to make it before the trees saw where I was headed, I cut down into the right branch of the gully and lay against a depression in the wall as I fumbled the lantern off. In the dark, the small noises became the world. The snow muffled everything, taking the edges off every sound before it reached me, soft and cold. At first, there was only the sound of my own breath, but then I started hearing something from farther off, a stealthy shifting sound, and then another and another, the snow being shunted and displaced as things drew nearer. My eyes were adjusting to the dark now, and in the ambient light of the moonlit sky, I could make out the silhouettes of the trees as they moved past me, slowly, carefully, twitching this way and that as though looking for some sign that I had left behind. These trees weren't just chasing me, they were hunting me. I held my breath as they passed, my hearing hampered as I forced myself to stay perfectly still. If they noticed me now, I would be trapped. They would follow me and pull me apart, feed me to whatever lay beneath the shifting snow at their feet. Hands trembling, I gripped the lantern and axe tightly as I waited. Just a few more seconds and it would be gone around the next bend, and I could sneak back the way that we had come. Just another minute and... The thing beneath the trees let out another shrieking cry, this one louder and more fierce. I couldn't help but feel a bit of satisfaction. It sounded frustrated, like a spoiled child that hadn't gotten it. Behind us, a thunderous roar echoed its response and I felt myself shuddering in pain as I tried to cover my ears. Nothing could be that loud, that large that... Stepping away from the wall, I turned and looked past the wall of the ravine that I was in. The big hill. The hill with all the giant trees. It was standing up. Standing up and turning towards us as it bellowed out another ear-splitting cry. To my side, growing closer again now, I heard the thing that had been hunting me call out in kind. A more complex and musical message. Happier and more satisfied. Perhaps saying... Here it is. Come help me catch it. I didn't wait any longer, but started running back up the gully just far enough to take the other, left-hand path back away. And it might have been enough to stop the small thing on my heels, but not the mountain that was taking its first heaving steps forward as snow poured down its sides, and the tree-looking things across its back began to shudder and shake with a rasping noise that reminded me of a rattlesnake's rattle big enough to fill the sky. It was then that I knew that I wasn't going to make it out of here. I would end in that cold, dark forest with no one knowing where I was, maybe no one even caring. I hesitated for a moment, slowed for a second, 
and then stumbled as my foot slid on something hard. Hitting the button on the lantern, I let out a gasp as I saw what filled the left path of the gully. It was bones, mostly animals, but there were a number of human skulls and leg and arm bones sticking out of the snow, crusted piles here and there, and looking down I had slid on part of a broken ribcage. I considered just running through, but I thought better of it. I couldn't outrun the big one, not without my car. And while I couldn't say for sure, I felt like I was getting farther from the tree lot, not closer. I puffed out of breath. If I kept running away, I wouldn't make it. My only chance was to take my best guess at where the car was and go for it. As big as that thing was, maybe it wouldn't see me in time and I could get away. I let out a cry of pain as a small branch curled around my ankle. Turning in horror, I saw the smaller thing had caught up with me again, and in the ravine I could see more of what lay behind the snow. Its body seemed long and flat and ghastly white, with dozens of small spindly arms that pulled it forward, each ending in small hard claws that bit into the snow and the rock as it crawled toward me. I couldn't make out a distinct head at all, but after a terrible moment of looking at it in the lantern's light, I could make out hundreds of small white eyes covering its sides and front. They blinked at me, almost curiously, as one of the tree things on its back began to tuck me closer. I screamed and chopped at it, and after two frantic blows it let me go, but it was already advancing again calling for the large one to help it as it tried to stop my mad scramble up the wall of the ravine and away from its grasp. It brushed the sole of my shoe, but then I was past the edge and on my feet again, running in what I hoped was the right direction, even though it took me back toward the gigantic hill that was coming for me. I was going as hard as I could, but I could already tell it wouldn't be enough. Despite its massive size, it was faster in the snow than I was, and it would cut me off before I could get to the lot, much less my car. I thought again about the smaller one's eyes blinking in the light, curious maybe, or maybe drawn to the lantern because it meant people. It meant new food. Turning, I flung the lantern as hard as I could back in the other direction, and paused long enough to see if the hunting mountain took the bait. It did. I could see it swinging in that direction, even as I began to run harder toward the way I hoped let out of the forest. I had made it another hundred yards before I heard the enraged roar behind me, echoed by a smaller cry further away. Glancing back, I saw that it, it had figured out my track, and it was now bearing down on me with all the weight and deadly speed of an avalanche. Ahead, I could see the lights of the lot, but what difference would it make? I couldn't get in my car and drive away quickly enough, and what was to stop it from just following me into the lot and I kept going as my brain ran its own race. Why was the lot there anyway? It was a kind of trap, right? It had to be. That woman was feeding these things, at least sometimes, and the fact that she was still there, that the lot was still there, meant either these things had to deal with her, or something kept them from being able to go into the lot itself. It was like freeze tag or something, and the lot was a safe space. 
or not. It might be that whatever kept them from normally charging in and destroying anything they found only applied when they weren't good and mad, which judging from these sounds behind me, they certainly were now. The hardwood trees, the real trees, so far as I could tell, were being split and raked aside as the creature closed the gap between us. Nothing was going to stop this thing, and it was going to catch me after all. But no, I couldn't just give up. I had to keep trying. I had to see my family again. Leaping forward, I felt some relief as I cleared the first string of twinkling lights. And when I had reached the split rail fence at the other end of the lot, I stopped to look back. I could just make out the hulking shape of a tree laid in hell, brooding at the edge of the shifting yellow light for several moments before shuffling off into the dark. I gave a shudder as I stepped back past the fence, motion to the left caught my eye, and I raised my axe as I spun in that direction. It was the woman, peering out at me from behind her trailer door. I could see the surprise in her face, but her voice was even when she called out to me, didn't find one you liked. I pointed the axe in her direction. Screw you. Trembling, I looked around momentarily at a loss for what to do. I wanted to go at her or just get in the car and drive away as fast as I could. Or my eyes landed on the scraggly sentry tree. Shuffling over to it, I kicked the particle board sign away and hacked at it strong, spit flying from my mouth as I cursed. When I was done, I opened the back of my SUV and stuffed it inside. Upholstery, I didn't care about it. Raking my eyes back toward the woman, I gestured to my prize as I puffed out an exhausted breath. I got my tree and I'm keeping the axe. I waved the axe head in a direction. Many more smart comments. I pulled my phone from my coat pocket as she murmured something. I had to text Sarah and tell her that I was running late but I would be there. Just a bit longer and I would be home. The woman said something else. Getting into the car, I cranked up and rolled down the window. What was that? She frowned at me. I said, Merry Christmas. I heard my jaw click as I gritted my teeth. Seriously. I put the car in drive and was about to stomp the gas when I stopped myself. Letting out a long sigh, I looked back out at the woman. Yes, she was most likely a horrible woman who was luring people to their demise. But I still couldn't help but feel a bit sorry for her as she looked out at me across the thinning snowfall. I had a wonderful family waiting for me, and she was all alone on Christmas, sitting in a trailer with hill monsters in her backyard. Screw her, sure, but maybe screw me a little bit too for taking so much for granted. Shaking my head slightly, I gave her a little wave. Merry Christmas. How I Survived and Hunted a Wendigo Written by Gaitin Kaas, 2007 My family was shocked when we heard our Uncle Benjamin was found in the woods surrounding his vacation home. I didn't know him very well, 
as he lived far away from most of the family, so I only really saw him at family meetings. His funeral wasn't a big event. There were my two aunts, Lucy and Laura, my other uncle, Stephen, and my little nephew, Mikey. In Ben's will was written that I got his vacation home. I figured that it was nice to spend some time in a place where there was no distraction as I had to study for my exams. Also, if I could rent a small apartment, I would probably have to live off instant noodles and water for a few months. The day after the funeral, I packed up my things so that I could move to my new home. The drive itself was uneventful, though I did underestimate the length of the drive. When I was driving through the woods, I thought that I saw a face or two amongst the trees, but I just blamed it on my mind for being a bit sleepy, and it was around 11pm when I had arrived. Once I was there, I put all the food that I had in the fridge and made my bed so I could go to sleep. When I woke up the next day, I showered and made some breakfast and hopped in front of the TV to watch a show on Netflix. Halfway through my show, I thought that I heard barking coming from the woods but I didn't think anything of it as I thought that it was coming from my show. However, the barking did not stop so I decided to check it out. I walked a bit in the direction that I thought it was coming from, but I couldn't find anything. So I shrugged it off and I walked back to the cabin. The rest of the day was uneventful. I did, however, sort out a few moving boxes. As it was getting kind of late, I decided to watch one more episode of my show and head to bed afterwards. The next day started off as normal again. I showered, ate breakfast, and started to unpack a few more boxes. However, around 10am, I heard it again, barking. This time I knew that it wasn't just my mind playing tricks on me, as I had heard it loud and clear. I directly stopped unpacking and went to investigate the noise. When I went into the woods to check out the sound, I found a tiny Labrador pop. It was covered in mud and scratches. I knew that I couldn't just leave him out there, so I took him back home. I gave him a bath to get all the mud and filth off him, and then I took him to the closest vet, which was about five miles away. Once we had arrived, I took a seat in the waiting room. I couldn't help but notice that the other people in the room had a small look of judgment towards me. I totally understand why as the pup looked like he had been attacked. When it was our turn, I heard a soft whimper coming from the pup, but he did decide to walk with me to the room. After a few checkups, the vet asked me if I had owned the pup. I said no and that I had found him in the woods. The vet went quiet for a second and asked me if I wanted him to check for a chip. I said yes and the vet checked, but he found no said chip. So, I suggested that if he didn't belong to anyone, that I could keep him and take care of him. The vet sighed and went to get the papers for me to fill in, so that I could take the puppy home. On the way home, I went to the local pet store to buy some toys, food, and a water bowl. After buying all the stuff that I would need to take care of him, I thought of a name for him. 
After about five minutes of thinking, I came up with the perfect name. Winston. Winston directly jumped up from his seat and started barking and wagging his tail. When we got home, I put everything in place and put his dog bed next to the couch with some toys and his food and water bowl in front of the TV. After that long day, I was very tired, so I decided to chill out and watch a few episodes of my show. When I sat down, Winston started whining while wagging his tail. I asked, Do you want to sit next to me, boy? He answered the question with a happy growl and jumped up on the couch beside me. I watched TV until it was around 10pm and I decided to call tonight. I decided to put Winston's bed in the bedroom next to me for the first night so that he could get used to the house. When I woke up the next morning, I noticed that Winston's bed was empty and that the bedroom door was open. I thought that he had walked through the door to watch the birds through the giant window in the living room. However, when I went to Jack, I didn't see him. But then I noticed that the front door was wide open, even though I knew that I had locked it the previous night. My heart dropped. I panicked and I ran out of the door to find him. After about 20 minutes of searching, I finally found him with a leaf he had found in his mouth. I picked him up and I carried him back inside. It was near lunchtime, so I decided to put a frozen pizza in the microwave. I was very hungry as I hadn't eaten anything for breakfast. After eating, I took Winston for a walk, but he kept looking into the tree line, as if something were out there. Each time, I thought that he saw something. I looked, but I couldn't see anything. After about 10 minutes of walking... I decided to head back to the house. I am glad that I made that decision, because right after I had closed the door behind us, it had started storming. The sky became a brown and yellow color, and I could see the clouds rolling over. I had seen this weather only once before. I was visiting a friend that had moved to the Netherlands, and then I first saw this type of weather. I decided to make some hot chocolate for myself and I sat down on the couch to binge watch my show for a while. Winston was sleeping right next to me. After a while, I dozed off too, but I was awakened by Winston whining at the front door. I decided to check up on him and noticed that he was shivering from fear. I looked through the window of the front door and saw nothing. I figured it was some deer walking by that had spooked the little pop. I picked Winston up and carried him to the couch so that I could cuddle him to ease his nerves. The next morning, I woke up early and decided to do an early morning walk with Winston. After walking for a bit, I saw a pack of deer just roaming around in an open area in the forest. This only reinforced my thought of Winston being scared from some deer just roaming around on our property. However, when we came back from our walk, I noticed something different about the front door. Scratch marks. Upon closer inspection, I saw that these scratches were massive. They were all about 10 inches long and 1 inch deep. Now, I'm no expert in forest animals, but I dang well knew that those didn't belong to a deer. 
I decided to call a repairman to come fix it, and they arrived in about 30 minutes. Those are some massive marks on your door, bud, one of the men said. Yeah, I would get something for protection if I were you, the other one said. I followed his advice and I later bought one, just to protect myself in Winston. After I had gotten back from the store, the men were already done with the door, and I gave him a thank you and they left. The following day started off pretty normal. I woke up, had an early shower, and decided to do another early walk with Winston. I saw two squirrels fighting over some pine cones, a flock of birds flying in the opposite direction of my house, and I think that I spotted a small mouse running through the freshly fallen leaves. However, Winston was shivering against my leg, whining. I asked what was wrong, and he basically jumped. I decided then and there to head back. I could hear something growl in the distance and another flock of birds flew off in the opposite direction of the sound. When I was back on my property, I noticed something weird. My front door was ripped from its hinges and lying about three meters to the left. I directly pulled my piece out of my pocket because I didn't know if who or whatever had left yet. When I walked into the house, I froze. There were scratches everywhere. Whatever had done this had enormous claws. Upon closer inspection, I noticed that the claw marks were the exact same as the ones on the door from yesterday. I also noticed that my fridge door was hanging from its hinges. When I looked in the fridge, I saw that it was a mess. All the meat was gone, and all the drawers were ripped out of the fridge. I put the front door back in its place using the tools that I had recently unpacked and I fixed up the fridge. After I was done, I decided to take a little break, so I sat on the couch with my drink. After a while, I moved my arm only to touch something wet and squishy. I jumped and looked at what I had touched. It was the body of a squirrel, well, at least what was left of it. The squirrel was pretty torn up, and it made quite a mess of my living room. I cleaned everything up and I buried the squirrel. I put a small stick in the grave as a sign of respect. After that, I decided it was time to pack my things. When I was about halfway done with putting everything in boxes, it was already late in the evening. I figured that it wouldn't hurt to stay here just one more night, but I was very wrong about that. I was woken up by Winston. He had jumped on the bed to hide with me. He was shivering and whining because he sensed that something was wrong. I stood up. Winston let out a bark to warn me. God, I should have listened. I went to the front door as Winston was looking right at it. I looked through the window and saw something big. It looked like a deer, but I knew it wasn't one. It had massive antlers and a skull-like face in the smell. Oh God, the smell. It smelled like waste. That had been rotting out in the sun for days. When I heard another bark coming from Winston, the thing looked up and tried to smash the door with its head. I directly pulled out my piece and I fired twice. The thing howled in pain and it ran away. After that thing ran away, I began to grab my stuff. I grabbed the most important things that I would need, picked up Winston, and I ran to my car. 
When I opened the car door, I heard the thing let out a cry behind me, but I didn't look back. I opted my car and I drove off. I am really glad that there wasn't much traffic on the road, as I was going about 90 miles per hour. I mean, can you really blame me for it? I wanted to get out of there as quickly as possible. While driving to get out of the woods, I saw the trees flash by. It reminded me of the first night that I had got there. However, it looked much different in the daytime. It also reminded me of the face that I had seen amongst the trees. I now know it was in my mind playing tricks on me that night, as the face I had seen looked exactly like the face of that thing. Lost in thought, I wasn't paying much attention on the road. However, I was directly awakened by the sudden movement in the trees. When I looked towards the movement, I jumped in my seat, and that thing suddenly jumped in front of my car. I screamed. The creature looked at me and lunged towards me. I slammed the gas pedal and drove around the creature. It stared right at me with its hollow eyes as I drove past. Four hours later, I was back in my hometown. I figured that I would go to see my aunt and Uncle Lucy and Stephen. But then I remembered that Mikey was allergic to dogs. So I went to my other aunt, Laura. I figured that she would like the company of me and Winston because of the sudden passing of her brother. I gave her a text that I was coming over and that I was taking my new friend with me. She told me that it was nice for me to come over. But then she asked me why I would drive all the way just to see her. I told her that I would explain when I got there. After about 20 minutes of driving, I arrived at her place. She opened the door and looked at my face. What's wrong, sweetie? She had asked me. I guess I was still looking a bit frightened after today's events. I asked if we could go inside. She agreed and we sat on the couch. Oh, is that your new friend? She asked, looking at Winston. I told her yes and that his name was Winston. Oh, that's a cute name, she said. And then she asked why I was here and why I looked so pale. So I told her everything. I told her about Winston, about that monster, and about all the weird stuff that's happened. She went silent for a bit. And then she asked me if I could describe the appearance of the thing. I told her about the antlers, the skull-like face, and the smell. After I told her about it, she looked terrified. She told me that my uncle had called her multiple times about a giant creature roaming around on his property. And the next day... He was found in the woods near his vacation home. I was shocked at all of this, and I asked her if she had a laptop or a computer that I could use. She said yes and that she would go and get it for me. She came back with her old laptop and she gave it to me. I opened up Google and I searched for the creature. After about 10 minutes of searching, I found out what kind of creature it was. It was called a Wendigo. After reading a bit, I knew that the creature that had attacked me definitely was a wendigo. I told Laura, and she was as pale as a ghost. We talked some more about all the events of the past week, but after about 20 minutes, Winston started whining. My aunt just chalked it up to Winston still being young, but I knew that wasn't the case. I told Laura that we needed to go, 
and she had asked why. I told her that we didn't have time, but she insisted that she was going to stay. And then she looked at the window. Looking back through the kitchen window was the Wendigo. She screamed. I tried to run after her, but she was too fast. She ran out the front door, only to face the Wendigo. What happened next will haunt me for the rest of my life. The Wendigo opened its mouth and roared, and then it unhinged its jaw. And my aunt was gone. Winston almost ran out of the door, but I picked him up just in time. The creature looked at me and grinned. I could still see pieces of my aunt and its teeth. I ran for the back door and out on the street. I didn't stop running until my legs were about to collapse. After checking if everything was safe, I fell underneath an oak tree. I was woken up sometime in the morning by Winston. After remembering what had happened the previous day, I started crying. Winston curled up beside me to ease my nerves. I'm glad you're here with me, buddy, I said. After fully waking up, I figured that was the best thing to do. I had to go back to my car and drive far away from here. However, when I was back at my aunt's house, I saw that my car was turned into a rack. The windows had been smashed. The metal had been turned into shreds and one of the car doors was hanging loosely. I checked the back seat and saw that my bag was still intact. I had left all of my money in the bag, so it was nice that I still had that with me. After grabbing my bag, I headed towards the shopping mall to buy some food, as I had left all my food in the vacation house. While walking, I realized that the Wendigo had likely followed me. I decided to head to the local library to learn more about the beast, mostly on how to get rid of it. When I entered, the nice librarian greeted me. I asked if there were any books about the Wendigo. She told me that she would check, and I gave her a thank you. After a while, she told me that there were two books in the horror section and one in the mythology section. I thanked her and headed to the horror section to find them. After searching for about eight minutes, I found them, and once I was done, I headed to the other section to find the last book. And then I headed to the exit. The librarian asked me if I had a pass and I told her that I didn't, but that I did have money. She scanned the books and I left. I decided to head to the grocery store afterwards, as I noticed that it was lunchtime already. I bought a sandwich for myself and some treats for Winston. After eating, I decided to head to the local park to walk Winston. I walked about 10 minutes until I found a bench and decided to sit down and read the books that I had bought. When I opened the first book, I directly looked up on how I could get rid of the beast. When I couldn't find anything, I opened up the second one. After looking, I didn't find anything either, so I opened up the last book. When I searched, I found information on how to finally get rid of this beast. I directly went to that page and read that silver was the weakness of the wendigo i remembered that there is a store about a mile away so i decided to pack my things and head in that direction when i entered the store i asked if they had any silver and they told me that they had some and that they would go and look for me sometime later they came back and put a small box on the counter in front of me i knew that it was going to be pricey 
but I had enough money to buy ten of them. And I also bought a new silver piece, as I figured that my old one was too small to even fit the new pieces. After I made my purchase, I walked out of the door and was greeted by Winston, who was wagging his tail happily. I told him that we were finally safe, and that I was going to protect him no matter the cost. He let out a bark of joy and we walked off. After my little trip to the store, it was almost evening. I knew that I had enough time to get ready for the flight with the Wendigo. I put three of these silver pieces and waited. After about six minutes of waiting, Winston started whining. I knew then and there that the beast was close. I stood up and I turned off the safety. I heard the thing roar in the distance and I looked in the direction of the sound. And there it was, the Wendigo. I immediately fired twice and the beast howled in pain and, and started charging towards me. I fired another which gave me enough time to reload and then I fired three more. One of it had hit its leg and another its eye. It collapsed and it cried out in pain. Winston started throwing a barking fit which agitated the beast even more. But it couldn't do anything because of the damage to one of its legs. I loaded another three and I fired the final three right into its heart. It fell unconscious, but I knew that it wasn't gone yet, as I had read that you needed to get the heart out of it first. I grabbed my knife and walked towards the spawn, and I got the rest of its leg and I took care of its throat, and then I began carving its chest to get to what I needed. After about 20 minutes, I had finally gotten the heart out. I put the heart in my bag and I headed back to Winston. Winston was hiding on the other side of the rock, where I had originally waited for the beast. Once he heard my voice call out, he started sprinting towards me. I kneeled and I started giving him kisses. I cleaned my hands in the nearby lake and we headed towards the nearest motel to sleep for the night. When I woke up the next day, I showered at breakfast and headed to the nearest church so I could bury the heart. When I showed it to the nuns there... They escorted me to a burial place. I grabbed a shovel and I started digging. After about five minutes of digging, we had created a big enough hole to bury the heart in. I put the heart in the hole and I closed it. And then I went to the nearby field to pick two flowers, an oxeye daisy for my uncle, and a buttercup for my aunt, as it was her favorite flower. I walked back to the grave and placed down the flowers. I then went to my Aunt Lucy and my Uncle Stephen, and I told them about everything that happened. When I was done talking, they were speechless, and I couldn't blame them, as I knew that the story would shock them. After they had processed everything, they asked me if I was okay. I told them that I was still in a bit of shock from everything that had happened. After we were done talking, they showed me the room that I could stay in and then asked me if I could keep Winston away from Mikey, as he was allergic. I told him that it would be no problem, as Winston was very well behaved. After, we had lunch together, and I asked if they had a laptop that I could use. Uncle Stephen went to get it for me, as me and my aunt chatted for a bit. A minute later, he came back with the laptop and handed it over to me. I then excused myself from the table and went to my room where I began typing this story to get this message out to everyone. 
All I have to say is this. Listen to your instincts. It saved my life and I believe it could also save many others as well. If you notice some strange things in the woods, get out of there as quickly as you can. It's hunting you. I hope you all enjoyed today's episode. With the new year ringing in, I hope you all have an amazing 2022. But as always, stay creepy.